I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I know you think they're sappy and bland. And you hated La La Land. But I gotta make you understand They can be profound and beautiful So I need you to like musicals When a guy picks a chick over his buddy, something gotta be wrong Hi ladies and gentlemen, welcome to I Need You To Like Musicals, episode 9. I don't know why I keep a running count of the episodes here, it doesn't really matter. I don't think there's gonna be a 10 episode season like there was with Sondheim on Adderall and then a break. I don't know, I might just keep going. I might stop altogether and then pick back up. It may turn into a less regular thing where I just do, I feel like it, it doesn't matter. The sky's the limit, folks. It's, uh, and the, and I gotta find my corner of the sky. I gotta find it. Anyway, today, this episode is all about positive energy. We're going to talk about some musicals positively. I got a lot of feedback um, after the last couple of episodes from the legions of fans out there on the internet saying, Are you sure that you like musicals? You should change the title to your podcast because it sure doesn't sound like you need anyone to like musicals because you don't care for them yourself. Yeah, granted, um, I we got in a bit of a rut, didn't we, folks? We uh, were in the toilet there uh, talking about Miss Saigon and Evita, and then we went even deeper into the toilet with Cats and Les Mis. So um, that's not... The, we're going to shift gears here. Um, I'm going to get back on track talking about musicals in reverse autobiographical order, uh, which really means nothing to anybody but me, but it's my show, so that's how I'm gonna do it. Um, the other thing, one thing that happened this week, I happened to look at a calendar and I realized, oh shit, my second job starts soon. It starts back up again, teaching musical theater, uh, this time to fifth graders, We're directing them in a show. I need to do a little research because the show that is on the books for these kids to do, I don't know a, a damn thing about it. I've never seen it. I've only heard of it. I need to watch it. Now, as a man who is almost 40, very close to the age of 40, one thing that's become more and more important to me is maximizing time. That's my whole thing now. I feel like there's only so much time when I'm not working or I'm not at school or I'm not doing something that like, I feel guilty sitting around and watching a thing. Or, you know, if I, I feel like I should be uh, doing wrist exercises while I read a book, that's not true. But that, that would be an example of that, maximizing time. So I thought, why don't I uh, take notes on this one and then those notes will be twofold. Uh, I'll be prepared for my job and then I'll be able to do a podcast on it. Now, unfortunately, the show that I'm doing with these fifth graders is Disney's The Descendants which, uh, if you're familiar, was uh, started as a TV movie musical in 2015, became a franchise. And uh, I, if you're familiar with this at all, then you're thinking what I'm thinking. I can't stay positive on the podcast this week and cover that thing because, whoo, that's going to be a feat. So anyway, today is not about Disney's The Descendants. We're not going to ever talk about Disney's The Descendants. Well, never say never. Who knows? Maybe I'll have a turnaround on it. But anyway, uh, today is going to be mostly a love fest. We're going to talk about two shows. One of them I love with all of my heart, and one of them I like with all of my heart, or at least the movie version of it. Both of these shows premiered on Broadway in 1972. Both of these shows are very horny. These are very horny musicals. And that's really where the similarities end. With the horniness 
1972. One is just undeniable fun, and the other one, if done right, is extremely weighty and profound. We're gonna talk about Grease and Pippin! And guess which one we're gonna talk about first? That's right, we're gonna talk about Pippin first. We're not gonna talk about Grease first. You cannot skip ahead and listen to me talk about Grease. You have to sit through the Pippin. If you're the kind of person that skips ahead to Grease, then you don't deserve to listen to the part about Grease. If you don't, Pippin, if you don't like Pippin as much as you like Grease, first of all, you're wrong. Uh, Pippin is way better. Second of all, consider this Methodist church services on Christmas Eve. If you don't sit through this, then Christmas morning and the opening of your Sega Genesis games is not going to be as exciting. You gotta work for it. You gotta sit through the Pippin to enjoy the Grease. Um, I love Pippin so much. I think it may be, may be my favorite non-Sondheim work. In my research this week, I found a quote about Pippin from somebody called him Scott Miller, who is a maybe self-proclaimed musical theater historian. And I liked this quote about Pippin so much that I bought his book uh, that very moment online because I was like, uh, this, this guy and me are on the same page. He wrote a book called From Assassins to West Side Story which is, uh, I guess it's like a, it's a director's guide to a certain number of musicals. And right there in the title, I mean, first of all, those are two of my favorites. So uh, me and Scott Miller, if, uh, Scott Mill if anyone knows Scott Miller, or Scott Miller, if you happen to be a fan of I Need You to Like Musicals, holler at me, baby. You and me are, uh, are uh, like-minded. Anyway, here's the quote from his book, which is in the mail, uh, coming to my house, but this is the quote. Pippin is a largely underappreciated musical with a great deal more substance to it than many people realize. Because of its 1970s pop-style score and a somewhat emasculated licensed version for amateur productions, which is very different from the original Broadway productions, the show has a reputation for being merely cute and harmlessly naughty. But if done the way director Bob Fosse envisioned it, the show is surreal and disturbing. Unquote. That's right. Um, Pippin, the ending of Pippin especially, particularly, we're going to talk a lot about the ending of Pippin today. Because the ending of Pippin is important, and it's uh, people monkey with it. People fuck with it. I had a conversation. If you were a, been listening since the beginning, or if you just uh, happened to tune in to my West Side Story episode, one of the whole reasons that I wanted to do a podcast to talk about musicals was I found that the people that were in my musical theater tribe, or like people that were actors, fellow singers, just sort of in the realm of musical theater, I found that I had very differing opinions than from them on uh, the, what musicals were good and what made them good. And one conversation I had at work at the Singing Waiter restaurant at which I work, was about Pippin. And this is where I kind of had that revelation, or at least uh, it came to light a little bit more. This uh, friend of mine I work with, a fellow singing waiter, we were talking about Pippin, I was talking about how much I love Pippin, and she said, yeah, I just don't like the ending. I feel like he should have, it should have been, uh, whatever. It, she said it should had like a different idea for how it should have ended that would have been more um, uh, sunny and user-friendly. And I, of course, really disagree. And I'm not just saying that because I think that things should have sad 
or scary endings or that everything should be dark. I just think that uh, musical theater is such a uh, it's mode of storytelling with so many possibilities that it's a shame that it's classified as a feel-good time only. So um, I don't want people to feel bad. I don't think that you necessarily need to feel bad from a sad ending or from a nuanced ending. I just think that uh, musical theater should do the same things that other mediums like film and straight theater do, uh, which is more complicated than just, uh, and they lived happily ever after. I want adventure in the great white somewhere. Pippin um, involves two towering figures in the musical theater, Bob Fosse and Stephen Schwartz. One was uh, at the start of his career, the Stephen Schwartz, 24 years old or so. And one was at the height of his powers towards the end of his career, Bob Fosse. Fosse, Fosse, Fosse. But neither of these men have anything else in their career before or after that comes close to this. I think that this is Fosse's masterpiece. And I would venture to say it's also Stephen Schwartz's masterpiece, though I think the contributions of Fosse are what make it a masterpiece. And that's also an interesting thing. When you watch this, and we'll talk about what the entry point is, there is a way to watch this, don't worry. Uh, it really is attributed to Bob Fosse more so than Stephen Schwartz. Even the thumbnail on the Apple TV when you search for it, or maybe the Roku, I don't remember. I have both. Mm -hmm. um, it's called Bob Fosse's Pippin. And you're goddamn right. It really is. Um, I think that I maybe enjoy and appreciate Bob Fosse more than I think I do. Uh, and unless you've been living under a rock, you know who Bob Fosse is. He pioneered an entire style of dancing with things like, uh, whatever, pajama game and, uh, Later, Chicago came after this, but just the whole thing with the hat and the thing and the sexy dancing and the jazz hands. That's all Bob Fosse. That's where that comes from. He made that up. There's a show on FX called Fosse slash Verdon. Worst title for a TV show ever. The show wasn't bad. I will tell you, I stopped watching it two episodes in. I was, and, and this wasn't why I stopped watching it, but this did piss me off. It's really, I found it really fun at first because it was like, oh man, the time and place of this show, of New York City, circa 50s, 60s, early 70s, and like working in Broadway, like that seems like, I, uh, I was born too fucking late. I wish I was, had been a part of that. But um, there's a scene at a party where some guy sipping a cocktail is talking to Fosse and he says, oh, you must see the new Stephen Sondheim play. It's about this man in his 30s named Bobby who uh, he's not sure if he wants to get married and he's afraid to commit. And then uh, Fosse says, oh, I'm at the edge of my seat already. And so I was like, fuck you. Fuck this show. Fuck these people. So um, anyway, it's an okay show. At least the three episodes that I saw. I don't know, it does that HBO thing. It wasn't on HBO, but it does the HBO thing of uh, people just doing impressions of historical figures. It's also, you can't really get the um, the full experience of what it looked like when Gwen Verdon did her hip-shaking dance because Michelle Williams, who plays her, is not Gwen Verdon. Um, so they kind of try to work around that. They try to not show the hips in a weird way so that it wouldn't be obvious that it's like Joaquin Phoenix singing as Johnny Cash it's like uh why this is not 
anything that's brilliant. But, okay, <laughs> you should have lip-synced to do it like uh, Jamie Foxx in Ray. Anyway, there you go. Uh, that's my take on that. We're getting a little off track. None of that was in my notes. That was uh, what you might call a detour. Pippin! Uh, started as a student musical by Stephen Schwartz and some other slob at Carnegie Mellon. Um, after he left the school and he wanted to turn it into something else and to bring it to Broadway, keep developing it, he's, it completely changed. That guy's not credited because Schwartz completely, not a single song or anything remained from it. Uh, it's a weird topic for a musical if you think about it because it's about this historical figure about which not much is known. Uh, the son of Charles the Great, Charlemagne, in the early Middle Ages, the 8th century. Pippin, sometimes uh, spelled differently, is Pepin, uh, which makes me think of pumpkin seeds. Uh, P-E-P-I-N, or Pippin, P-I-P-P-I-N, as it is in the musical. He, um, apparently he actually was a hunchback. They say in the musical that, oh, there's some rumors that he was a hunchback, but please, set all this aside, this is the real story. Um, but the, the, this fucking musical is a rumor, because Pippin was a hunchback. He did begin uh, a conspiracy against his father, but... Uh, that plot was discovered, and they shaved his head and sent him to a monastery. And that was the end of Pippin. So there you go. Um, none of this other stuff that happens to Pippin in the musical is real on any level. They do a, uh, a sort of a, a abstract thing where he does kill his father in the show, and then he says, I want my father to have his job, and he comes back to life, etc. We'll get into that later. Um, some historians uh, think that maybe Pippin was the offspring of a concubine, and not um, whatever, the second or twelfth wife of Charlemagne or whoever. I don't know what the fucking difference is. It still makes him his son, just because uh, he had it with a prostitute. Also, the characters, uh, obviously, of um, Charlemagne is real. That's a real person. And Fastrada and Bertha, those are also real. Those uh, Fastrada was Charlemagne's third wife, and Bertha was his mother. So, um, Bob Fosse is given the script. Uh, written, by the way, uh, Roger O. Hearson. Great script. Really one of the top-tier books of a musical. And it's anybody's guess, really, how much of that is from Roger O. Hearson, and how much of that was Bob Fosse getting his hands in there. But, um, anyway, Bob... Fosse, when he's given the script, at this point he's already an icon, he's 47 years old. He only agrees to direct and choreograph it if he's allowed to make the story more dark and sophisticated. Stephen Schwartz is 24 years old. He's the fresh face. He's the Pippin in this situation. He's just this little fella. He's right out of school. Well, he's actually, he's right off of Godspell. He just did Godspell. And um, then he does this, like a year later. He doesn't do much after this for 20 years. And then out of nowhere, he does Wicked. In fucking whatever that was, 2003, 2004. Also Pocahontas, uh, somewhere there in the middle. He uh, come, come, serves the Dark Mouse and uh, writes the score to Pocahontas, which uh, we all uh, agree is uh, the worst of the Disney Renaissance musicals of the 90s. Uh, it's just a musical where the her fucking hair blows in the wind and we whitewash all of the whatever. Um, but, uh, he also did The Prince of Persia? Egypt? Anyway, people seem to like that one, whatever. So, I am uh, of two minds about Stephen Schwartz. I have not really dug into it. I have not seen Wicked. Let me put it that way. So, I'm a real fucking fraud. I need to, like, buy a ticket to see Wicked the next time Wicked is around. Because, um, I mean, I've heard the songs, and et cetera, and uh, I like it. I think it's, it sounds good. I like his aesthetic. I like the sort of 70s feel of the music that he writes um but i 
considered myself a Steven Schwartz head on the strength of Pippin alone, because I've always loved Pippin. But in doing my research this week, I feel like what's good about Pippin is not attributed to him. Um, we'll talk about that. My uncle worked with Steven Schwartz um, on a draft of Mulan. My uncle is a screenwriter, um, and it was a draft that never got used, of course. And if you bring up Steven Schwartz in front of my uncle, my uncle will motherfuck this guy up and down. He's like, he like will literally, he'll spit on the ground. He hates Steven Schwartz. <laughs> and uh, it makes me laugh. And I like Steven Schwartz a little bit less after doing this research. He said, because the, when they did the revival, obviously Bob Fosse is long dead. If anybody's seen all that jazz, we know that he drank and smoked himself into an early grave, um, or a relatively early grave. He said, quote, there were specific choices Bob made that I honestly thought were heavy-handed and crude, and not in a good way. All right, well, I think the, I think it's great. I think all of the choices are great in the original. Then this is while they were doing the revival in 2013, uh, a show where a lot of changes were made. Not all good changes. The, the book, like I said, is excellent. Roger O'Hearson, he did like one other libretto for one other musical. I didn't write down what it was and I forget what it was. And I was like, what? who is this guy? He was a little bit older at the time and he has a lot of TV credits, but they're mostly um, like Studio 90 type stuff. Uh, you know what I mean? Like uh, plays, teleplays, which is kind of gone from uh, the culture. <laughs> you don't really get that anymore. And I love those, man. I, lo I mean, I love watching those. Maybe I just love the ones that were good plays that they did television versions of, like Death of a Salesman, The Glass Menagerie. Um, uh, content warning, I'm going to compliment Louis C.K. If you've ever seen Horace and Pete, his uh, show that he did in 2016, um, that's kind of like one of those. It feels like theater, but it's a TV show. That uh, It's like theater with live switching cameras. Anyway, um, check that out. It's uh, sad in a way. You'll get sad in a way that you've never been sad in your life watching it. Uh, but some of the best acting and writing you'll ever see in the world. One year before he uh, got canceled. But as a lot of people point out, he's not really canceled. Um, Pippin. Uh, is really carried by the performance of the great Ben Vereen. Um, it's kind of unbelievable how good Ben Vereen is in Pippin. Uh, John Rubenstein is in the original cast. I think he kind of sucks. Apparently my mom went on some dates with him. Uh, you know, not to uh, you know, stub everybody's toes by dropping some names, but my mom dated John Rubenstein. He came back for that revival in 2013 and played Charlemagne. The original cast recording is not good. And it's in John Rubenstein's voice. I mean, it's it's a very small, pretty voice, and it works for the music. But what's so cool about the show is some of these pretty little ballads, like "With You," for instance. If you just listen to that as a song, that's one thing. What they do with it on stage, like the staging of that, where he's going from woman to woman and changing his mind, that's what makes that song. Just on the album, it's just something that you you know eat some quaaludes and just chill out to. But um, anyway. That's how I feel about that. I've talked a lot about Clive Barnes, the New York Times critic, because he has some very bad takes on things. Today is his worst take yet. Um, he was very critical of Sondheim, which, of course, I, I, I will not stand for. But he said about this, like, this is the most fucking dismissive. He said, quote, It is a commonplace set to rock music, and I must say I found most of the music somewhat characterless. 
It is nevertheless consistently tuneful and contains a few ro rock ballads that could prove memorable. I think that if it's 1972 and you've got some old buzzard writing lyrics like, uh, writing reviews like that, then you should fire him and get somebody that's a little less out of touch. Uh, you know? It's a dumb thing to say. That kind of goes against Roger Ebert's whole uh, idea of how a review should be written. It's just, okay, that's not your cup of tea. He likes fucking fine wine and not doesn't... Rock music is somewhat characterless. It bothers me. Um, the aforementioned Revival 2013, they went with this whole fa uh, circus motif. I wrote down family circus. I don't know why. It was weird. Is the, the, you ever watch the, they read that comic strip? Anyway, the circus. Uh, Join in the circus. Acrobats, trapeze. They changed the ending. Uh, more on that later. I we're going to talk a lot about the ending later. I know I already said that. There was movie buzz around Pippin for a while. In the 2000s and then in the 2010s. Craig Zaden. Our friend from the Sondheim on Adderall days who wrote Sondheim and Company, who's also a producer, he was going to produce the film version of Pippin, but here's the problem. This was in development in the late 2010s at a little place called the Weinstein Company. And, um, you know, you don't want to be in development with the Weinstein Company in the late 2010s because uh, some shit is about to go down. And things are going to go bankrupt. So the rights to the movie quietly were returned to the author, Stephen Schwartz. And there was no longer a movie uh, in uh, the chamber for Pippin. Which is good. Like, I bet you they would fuck it up. Maybe they wouldn't. I don't know. Maybe if somebody good made it. I uh, My history with Pippin, I've never been in it. I've always wanted to. I never really got the chance. I think I'm too... I'm, I don't think. I'm definitely too old to play Pippin now. And so I have to wait until my... Charlemagne years. I'm in the, the fallow years between Pippin and Charlemagne right now. First time I saw it was in 1999 in a tiny theater. I wish I remember which one. And I tried to look this up. Tried to Google uh, Los Angeles Times Theater Review, Pippin, 1999. No record of this. Uh, boy, oh boy. A really good, intimate production of Pippin that blew my mind in 1999. Saw it twice. Saw it with uh, family, then went back and saw it with friends. Very, very good indeed. A great entry point if you've never seen Pippin is the 1981 filmed stage version that they made for Canadian television. You got Ben Vereen in that one. You got William Catt. Um, and it's really, uh, it's a shortened... Um, this is very strange. Okay, I watched this thing a million times in high school because it's so good. Um, but there are, like, a lot of the songs are shortened. Uh, and today, I watched it again on YouTube because I noticed... So there's also a version on Broadway HD that's even more shortened. This is very complicated. I'm sorry. I've opened a can of worms here. So, okay, here's the deal. You got the show of Pippin that's on Broadway in its complete form. You got the 1981 film stage version released on VHS... Chris gets that for his birthday or Christmas or whenever, and let's call it the year 2000, watches it, gets really into it, notices that a lot of the songs are shortened, whatever. Cut to 2020, it's time to uh, go inside and uh, shelter in place because there's this global pandemic. Chris uh, is living with a, a teenage boy, uh, the stepson, and showing him a lot of uh, films and musicals. And uh, there's an app called Broadway HD on, upon which you can watch a lot of these things. I realize as we're watching this, wow, this is even more shortened 
This is like a truncated version of the truncated version. And then I realized to my horror that they truncated the ending. More on the ending later, I promise. So um, today I found on YouTube, because I didn't want to bullshit around with this shortened, shortened version. I found it on YouTube. I was like, okay, at least this is the one I'm used to. But then I find out the shortenings that they did in the first place are lengthened with bootlegs. Like all the parts that they cut, they, 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 it switches over to a way shittier recording and we see those scenes. So check that out. I don't know if it'll be off of YouTube if you're listening to this 10 years later, but you know, I forget what the video is called. Just, you know, Pippin, full show. Pippin, his life and times, or whatever the fuck it's called. It was great. I was very, I was grateful for this. So thank you for ever put that up. That must have been a real cut and paste job in iMovie or wherever the fuck you did it. Um, so yeah, um, the ending to Pippin is extremely important. As far as I'm concerned, the original ending is the only ending. Anyone who monkeys with the ending is a coward and a charlatan. It starts, though, um, lest you thought this was not Fosse, the musical starts with nothing on stage but floating jazz hands. The famous Fosse jazz hands. And that's all you see is hands floating in the jazz hand position. Now, I know what you're thinking. If you're a person that saw the film Center Stage, the teen dance movie from the year 2000, uh, you think the jazz hands is something the jazz hands is not. You think it's the shaking. It's the extended hands with the fingers far apart, but you're shaking them. In fact, jazz hands are just the hands with the fingers extended apart and not shaking. And um, it's a big fossy thing, the jazz hands, where you have one on each side and you're moving back and forth to the side. That's a terrible explanation of what it is. Ben Vereen is breathtaking in this thing. Anyone else who tries to be the leading player ought to be ashamed. And I can completely understand why in the revival they would change it to cast a woman in the role. Because nobody is going to come fucking close to what Ben Vereen did in this. Ben Vereen is a powerhouse as the leading player. Um, it's amazing. And it's not even apparent right away. Like, it's in Magic To Do, it's fun. You know, it's charming. It's like, oh, okay, this is great. He's singing, he's dancing. Later, when we get to glory, oh my God. And all this, just, he is fucking firing on all cylinders. Ben Vereen, Pippin. Um, Magic To Do is a very interesting opening number because it doesn't really follow the Hammerstein-Sondheim rules of what an opening number should do. It doesn't really tell you what the evening is going to be. It just says that, we, you know, we've got magic to do. Now, once you've seen the whole thing, in retrospect, it does make sense. Um, but, you know, the show is not really about magic. I mean, what am I trying to say? It's like... The backdrop of things, the whole, the player, lead, the player and the leading players and the fact that it's, uh, it's Brechtian, okay? It's uh, the distancing effect. They're breaking the illusion of reality so that you can analyze its meaning. That is uh, modeled on Bertolt Brecht, and that was done intentionally. Um, so I guess the opening number is appropriate. I, I really went in a circle there. I didn't know where I was going. Anyway, it's, it seems weird. Let's just say, for example, you're me or you're somebody that doesn't know what the fuck Pippin even is. And you go to the theater to see something called Pippin. You're like, what is this? Is this about Scotty Pippin's life, the basketball player? Uh, okay, let's see. And then a bunch of people sing that they've got magic to do. I'm not sure it really tells you what is in store in the evening. But in a sense, it does. So they have this fun storytelling device where they introduce Pippin. They have that blanket. They 
the little boy reads the book and then they pull him down and the grown man reads the book they pull him down time passes um you have to kind of see it to know what i'm talking you had to be there am i right you gotta you just gotta see it everyone should see pippin it's great um but they get into corner of the sky which is the big hit from the show i sing it at this restaurant with the singing waiters i usually do it like third or fourth I usually start with it had to be you, it had to be you, and then I, uh, once the restaurant's really cooking around like 8 o'clock, I'll sing uh, Can't Take My Eyes Off of You, and then um, I'll do uh, Build Me Up Buttercup, and then uh, if people are still around uh, come 9.30, let's say, I'll, I'll pull out Corner of the Sky as sort of a little uh, falling action there. Anyway, uh, apparently every asshole high baritone leading man type uh, brought this song into an audition for 20 years after the show came out. It was like a big uh, staple for uh, male audition songs. We sang it at my fifth grade culmination from Pacific Palisades. What do you think of that? Um, in this version of Pippin, the TV version from 1981, you've got the famous Cheetah Rivera as Fostrada, the original Anita from West Side Story, the original, original uh, Rosie from Bye Bye Birdie. Real sexy and good, even though she's older. Uh, MILF status at this point. William Catt, uh, the great American hero. He plays Pippin. I'm going to tell you something. Um, and I don't know if anyone else has seen this thing or pointed this out at any point. His voice sounds tired. It's kind of the weird thing. Is He seems like he's got a good voice, but it's like a little hoarse. And it kind of gets more hoarse throughout the show. Pippin does do a lot of screaming. And I wonder um, if, like me... <laughs> When I've done shows, uh, he was not screaming safely and got himself into a place where he could not uh, sing uh, as well. Anyway, yeah, he sounds hoarse. He sounds like he's a good singer, but he doesn't have the notes that night, the night that they were filming, which is really a shame. Uh, maybe in 1981, they didn't know how to do the um, prednisone shot in your ass for your voice, the steroid thing, or the now that you can do it in pill form. I don't really know how it works. I've only had prednisone for... Uh, other things, uh, like the, the sting on my tongue from the yellow jacket. I, they gave me a little prednisone. One of the side effects, by the way, from prednisone, the miracle singing drug, which people take. If you don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, prednisone is like, if you're a singer, it's like a miracle drug that you can take to fix your voice. It's a steroid. And one of the side effects is ex uh, excessive happiness. That is one of the side effects of prednisone. So look forward to that if you ever get prescribed that drug um welcome home son is a weirdly unnecessary song that only is like eight bars welcome home son welcome home um but you know it doesn't do any harm you could have done it with words but they did it with a song um so th the main thrust of pippin um i don't know if this is a show this podcast is a show that you could listen to without being familiar with the musicals or if it just becomes tiresome because you don't know what I'm talking about, but I'll give you a little um, summary. You know, it's just, it's a young man who's a prince. He's the son of this big king, basically the king of all of fucking Europe, uh, Charles the Great. And he's just out of school and he's trying all, he wants to feel completely fulfilled. And so he tries different things. He tries to go to war. That doesn't work out. He tries to have a lot of sex and do a lot of drugs. That goes a little too far. He tries politics. He tries to be revolutionary. That doesn't work out. He briefly ties uh, 
Uh, after that is uh, the, the arts and then religion. And then uh, the, in the end, he meets a woman and he tries to have this simple life uh, settled down with a woman and her son, a widow. And um, anyway, and then it gets into the ending, which is just one of the best endings of a musical ever. Um, but the, this we're in the war sequence here, okay? So right after Corner of the Sky, that's, that's the musical theater I want song to end all musical theater I want songs. He just wants to be where his spirit can run free. That's what Pippin wants. And that's what he spends the rest of the musical in pursuit of. So uh, the first thing he tries is war. He decides he's going to go to war with his dad and his brother, Lewis. And he goes to the war council meeting or whatever the fuck, uh, the strategy meeting. And there's a song called War is a Science. Now, this is a good song and it's fun and it's funny, the little devices that they use in the song. But this is where you kind of learn that Stephen Schwartz is not a very strong lyricist. And this is a problem throughout. His songs are wordy and crowded. He seems to be showing off a little bit. And it's you get a little bit of this later, but you, you definitely hear it in this song. Um, and if all the ploys we've pipped to really work to bring to pass occur, we won't have just a victory. We'll have ourselves a massacre. So if you're sitting in the audience and you hear pass occur, that massacre rhyme, you can hear that marching down the fucking lobby steps. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, that's just... And that's uh, that's just sort of poor craftsmanship. You're, you're, you're flagging a rhyme before it happens, before it resolves. Because what the fuck else are you going to rhyme with? Passacre, you idiot. This happened once um, at an open mic. I heard this guy... Um, well, he was singing... He, he said before he started the song... That it was a song about going to the uh, the funeral of a of a family member member, and he says da 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 about to blow a gasket da 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 oh what's he gonna rhyme that with? That's right, casket. So it's it's uh, that I think that that's if you're better at writing lyrics, you don't necessarily do that. Um, have a rhyme that anybody can predict. You don't want a predictable rhyme. Is all I'm trying to say. Jesus, that was a long way to make that tiny point. After War is a Science, we go to war, and I think really kind of the high point of the show, not counting the ending maybe, or at least in this version, is the song Glory, because this is where Ben Vereen really shines. This is triple threat exceptionalism. The way that he is singing, acting, and dancing, um, and the, how the, they're all integrated, is so fucking good. And it's almost so good that it's like not a human being. It's like a cart. It's a human cartoon. Does that make any sense at all? What I just said. Just what? What the whole blood? <laughs> blood is round as sunset. Glory, glory. And then the whole sequence after that is really profound. The way it talks about war and the way that it makes war sexual and penetrated by steel. And if you watch the movie Fosse, in the following section of the podcast, Chris will foolishly and repeatedly say Fosse instead of all that jazz. The film he is talking about is all that jazz, not Fosse. There is no such film as Fosse. He is sorry for his clumsiness and ignorance. Which if you're not familiar with, Fosse, uh, probably the most solipsistic, narcissistic act ever committed in film, is... Um, Bob Fosse's movie that he wrote and directed about his own death. 
It's like an autobiographical film about himself dying. And um, it shows, you could see watching Fosse how the whole glory sequence was probably Bob Fosse's creation. And that he is definitely not just a choreographer that you hire on uh, a show that is like the conception of somebody else. You know what I mean? Like he's not going to be like uh, Patricia Birch on A Little Night Music where, you know, it's a Sondheim show and they need to bring in a choreographer. Like he is putting this thing together. So anyway, my point is in Fosse, there's a whole part where there's this composer that comes in with this song about, uh, and I don't forget how, I don't remember how it goes, but it's like about being in an airplane, <laughs> flying in an airplane. And then he takes this little song, this little ditty, and then he makes this long sequence that's like sexual. And it's about people fucking on an airplane. And then it gets like quiet and then there's whispers and then there's dancing. My point is, I think that's probably what happened here. The composer is incidental to Bob Fosse. It's like, I feel like Fosse kept saying, hey, Steve, we need more music here, buddy. No, no, more. No, 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 set the wrong tone. I think he was in charge, is what I'm saying. Because he was the pro and... And uh, the way that war is depicted here um, is really fucking smart and really uh, made me emotional watching it. And, you know, I, just to timestamp this, like, and to not really talk about it because... That sounds, that'd be lame to do. I'm recording this episode during a week of horrific atrocities uh, in Israel-Palestine. And, you know, um, one of the biggest lessons from that for me is to just shut up and that your righteous anger is not necessarily going to help anything. And I'm, I, I'm curious about it, like learning and listening to things. Uh, that sounds so, uh, that sounded corny the way I said it, but I really do mean it. Like, um... I'm absorbing a lot of information about it, but I am saying nothing about it. And I know that people are starting to say, your silence is noted. Um, okay, that's fine. I'm going to stay silent because, uh, frankly, we could use a little bit of silence. Uh, Gary Shandling taught us this, that the world is too loud to survive and everyone needs to shut the fuck up. And anyway, what I'm saying is I, um, I'm anti-war. I'm an anti-war uh, absolutist. I believe that there is no such thing as a good war. And I've been called naive for having this view. This is uh, one of the things I inherited from my mother that I felt was worth hanging on to. Um, I had to sort of take what I needed and leave the rest from her ideologies. But I think I can say, in all honesty, uh, that war is a failure of morality. And I've never, uh, I don't think that there's any good war. So, sorry. Uh, you can disagree with me and I'm not going to whatever. The thing is, uh, people that talk about the need for war from air-conditioned rooms with ties on, those are the people that I want to punch in the mouth. Hey, I thought you were a pacifist. you want to punch them? Yes, I'm fine with punching people and I'm still a pacifist. This has really been tested uh, this year, not just because of the week, uh, the news of this week, but I am in a class at the school that I go to um, it's uh, ancient medieval literature, and it's kind of the first, the, the, the professor, he's like the star of the English department. He is the first serious professor, and this is the first serious class that I've taken. He's very passionate. He, uh, you know, starts uh, passionately speaking in early English to us, and Middle English, and Italian, and Latin, and he, it's the most uh, philosophically weighty class that I've taken. Um, I have trouble 
when he relates these ancient texts to the 20th century, because I, I feel from where I'm sitting and who the fuck am I? I'm a student. Um, I feel that he tends to oversimplify and, you know, he, he uses things like the Iliad and the Bhagavad Gita and Beowulf to say that, you know, war is inevitable and upon us and will always be here and will never end. And it's not that I disagree with that. It's that he uses that to then say uh, it is silly to be anti-war. When, of course, like these things happen in degrees, right? We need anti-war people uh, as a counterbalance uh, to those wars. And yes, you cannot end all wars, but you can still uh, move the needle. I've been having, the, I, I'm losing my mind over this shit because <laughs> that's why I ended up talking about it so much here. Sorry, I'm going to get back to Pippin in one second. I promise. But um, as much as I like this professor and I like this class, um, this has been bothering me. And I've been having imaginary arguments with this professor in my car. I'm very intimidated by him. He's a guy with a fucking uh, Virgin Mary tattoo and walks around with crucifixes around his neck and uh, is very erudite. And I know that I should go into his office hours and talk to him about this. He has no interest in engaging me in class if I ever raise my hand. And I don't want to be that older student that says all the shit in class. So I've been really trying to keep my mouth shut. But the idea that the Bhagavad Gita is uh, some sort of justification for just war theory um, just makes me angrier and angrier <laughs> the more I think about it. Um, because, you know, uh, the, the, uh, we all know we all know that Gandhi interpreted the Bhagavad Gita differently, uh, a little bit more abstractly, as a metaphor that, uh, that Krishna is not telling Arjuna that he must fight the war uh, in a literal sense. But in fact, uh, the, the, the battlefield is in the soul. And Arjuna and Krishna are, uh, represent Dharma and Adharma. So there you go. Um, that's how I feel about a war. Sorry about all that. This is just, uh, whatever. Um, it's a great song, is my point. The song Glory from Pippin. Um, you get a uh, Bob Fosse staple here in the middle of it. There's a little toe-tapping thing with three people. Uh, with one, the leading player in front, and then two people flanking him. He does that a lot. He first did that, maybe. Or not for, I don't know. I'm not a, I'm, I don't know a lot about Fosse's career, to be honest with you, except for this and maybe Chicago and then the film Cabaret. I know that he did all those, but Pajama Game may have been the first. It's where there's one in front and then two on either side, a little bit upstage of them. Beyonce, of course, modeled the fucking all the single ladies dance off of some Fosse thing where that was happening. You know what I'm talking about. Let's, let's move on. Jesus Christ. In the extra shit in that YouTube video, I was reminded that there's a scene after Glory where Pippin talks to a decapitated head after the war. Um, and, you know, was that cut for time or was that cut for, uh, you know what I mean? Because the, the head says to him, he says, like, uh, how many battles were you in? Uh, two before this. And then it's like, well, how, how are they different? And they say, well, uh, the battles that you don't die in are pretty much the same. And he said, I was afraid of that. Is this a anti-war text? You tell me. It is to me. Those are the best things, I think. Uh, is stories that are not uh, up on a pedestal being anti-war, but stories that people argue are anti-war stories, like a full metal jacket, uh, things of this nature. Um, you know, 
anyway, let's move on from the war thing. They uh, let's not move on from the war thing. They very explicitly connect it to 20th century wars in a section where they talk about all the casualties from the world wars, just to make it very clear to the audience um, what we're dealing with. And of course, this is 1972. We're uh, still mired in a you know a war in East Asia, and uh, I don't know if we'd gone into Laos and Cambodia yet. Laos, Laos. I never know how to pronounce that. Uh, Pippin, his disillusion with war, he thought there'd be more plumes. It's kind of, it's very brave. Let me just close out this war section by saying that very brave on the part of the makers of Pippin to do this. And it makes me miss the anti-war spirit of the American left. Um, I, 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 I get a little bummed out by how bloodthirsty the Democratic Party is these days. Anyway, let's never talk about politics ever again and let's just live a quiet life by a river and put my head in the sand and my silence will be noted, but I won't hear it because everything else will be silent. Simple joys have a simple voice. This says, why not go ahead? So that's what Pippin does. What I just described, uh, Pippin uh, follows the advice of the um, leading player to go and find some sweet summer evenings uh, with wine and bread. Very strange song, Simple Joys. Ben Vereen crushes it. You get some lyrics, uh, but wouldn't you rather be a left-handed flea? A f- God damn it. What did it- <laughs> I lost it. Let me try it. Let me start over. What wouldn't you rather be a left-handed flea? A crab on a slab at the bottom of the sea. A newt on the root of a banyan tree. A fig on a twig in Galilee. Then a man who never knew how to be free. Not till the day he, not till the day he, not till the day, not till the day he dies. When I saw this in the small theater, it was a white guy playing the leading player, and he was good and everything. But I had no. There were certain sections like this one where it's like, why is this song still happening? Uh, but when you see Ben Vereen do it, you're like, that's why, <laughs> because, uh, it's, so Ben Vereen can sing some more and it's very good. And that's, it's not a black and white thing. You know, I don't know why I, <sighs> no time at all. Extremely catchy song. Sounds like it should be in free to be you and me. It's got that seventies children song vibe. Um, this is a, a song that's like so much more fun in a small theater. That was just like, wow. You know, because they, if you don't know, they, they bring lyrics out and everybody sings along. They do a sing along and she invites you to sing along. The lady singing it, Bertha, Pippin's grandmother, who's a very horny old woman that's been banished to the outskirts of town. And she preaches to Pippin that he should just uh, have a lot of sex, a lot of hanky panky and sings, oh, it's time to stop living. Stop living. Jesus. <sighs> Do I have Alzheimer's disease, guys? Am I going senile? I used to be someone that remembered everything, and now it's all falling out of my head. Let me start that again. Oh, it's time to start living. Time to take a little from the world we're given. Time to take time, because spring will turn to fall in just no time at all. Catchy, uh, everyone sings along. Um, I stole this later when I did children's theater. I decided that, you know, it would be fun to have certain sing-along, like to get the lyrics on poster board and have the parents in the audience sing along. Um, and yeah, it's still fun in the large theater, I guess, but not as fun because it feels more communal if you're all in a little 99 seat thing, 99 seat theater thing, and you're all compressed there together. 
Um, I got choked up watching this today. Uh, this song on the line. Um, Here is a secret I never have told. Maybe you'll understand why. I believe if I refuse to grow old, then I can stay young till I die. Something about it, man. I got chills saying it right then, too. It's just something about the old lady singing that um, made me emotional. I love it. I love Pippin. Uh, after this, we get a song called With You, which I mentioned earlier. If you just listen to the soundtrack, it's a nothing love song. But on stage, it's so smart. The way he's singing a song called With You, <laughs> and he's uh, going from woman to woman and then noticing another one and being like, excuse me, and then go... And, uh, the whole sequence after that, again, it's a Fosse-ian sequence where um, it just the music changes and there's all these segments and moments and it's not one linear thing. And it really makes you think about the heterosexuality of the choreographer, right? Like you don't often get a heterosexual choreographer. And what we know about Fosse was that he was a womanizing, uh, you know... Uh, what's a nice word for this? Uh, libertine. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the ensuing, the sequence with the keyhole and then the, um, the group sex and then that moment when he accidentally has anal sex, uh, and then makes that confused look. Uh, love it. Love everything about it before it's time or maybe perfect for its time. Maybe it's past its time. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe, um. It's too weird to do that now, but in 1972, it was like right in the zeitgeist. Eventually, Pippin uh, decides that sex and smoking out of uh, weird hookahs is just a little too much for him. And he needs to uh, kind of touch, touch grass, as they say. Um, and then they get into this scene with Pippin and his father. I mean, later. First, he decides to overthrow his father, which is historically accurate. And Fastrata uh, kind of uh, uh, Iago's this uh, into happening. She sets it up so that because it, it serves her interests, uh, whether Charlemagne or Pippin die, because either Pippin kills Charlemagne or Charlemagne discovers the plot and kills Pippin, because then her son is next in line for the throne. So she makes it so that uh, they she forces a confrontation. And then there's this intense fucking scene between Pippin and Charlemagne. That does not seem like it is in a musical. And then they balance it out with little jokes as breathers. In a way that's like really balanced. Charlemagne does this Shakespearean monologue. I build an empire out of chaos! And um, I don't know the exact quotes here. And then um, I've heard this criticized actually. Because they don't let that sit. And then they he does this big monologue. And then the leading player says, wonderful. And it's like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. But it just, it works. And that's what this show does. And that's what really good comedy does and what good musical comedy does that's important okay this is a musical comedy um he's they say as much a couple times out loud like pippin's freaking out and he says all right i know this is a musical comedy but i want my life to mean something and man like never has a musical comedy done as gracefully what this musical comedy does First of all, it makes it into a real comedy, not a musical comedy where it's like, ha, 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 that poison could develop a cold. No, it's like, first of all, actually funny, but also good comedy, like, brush gets face to face with tragedy and then rejects it. That's what this does. It's like a fucking Cassavetes film, man. It's great. <laughs> he stabs his father in the back. He sings Morning Glow. Now, 
This is uh, alternately. I know I said that no time at all is better in a small theater. Morning Glow is actually better in a large theater. Because when I saw it in the small theater, I thought like, okay, this is this song really necessary? It's feel like we're pausing the action to have this moment to uh, sing about Morning Glow. But in the big theater with the candles, it, it's this big moment and Pippin becomes king and here we go. And it's a pretty song. That synthesizer in it. Do, 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 do. Do 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 do. You know what I? Yeah. You know, uh. What, what's that thing that I just bought? I just bought an instrument today, a stylophone. You ever heard of a stylophone? Google image a stylophone. I just bought one of those. I gotta learn how to play Morning Glow on the stylophone. If I here's the thing. If uh, I have learned by the time this episode is finished being edited, if I've learned how to play Morning Glow on the stylophone, I'll do it. Here it is. Okay, uh, if you didn't hear a stylophone just then, it's because I did not take the time to learn Morning Glow on the stylophone. The end. So, um, he becomes king after this big grand moment of like all of the tyranny is that we're coming out of the past and Morning Glow. And then it's so fun. Everything goes to shit immediately. Um, which, by the way, is why you should not add an intermission after a Morning Glow. We should address this briefly. Um... Pippin is meant to be a one-act musical. There is not an intermission in Pippin. There should not be an intermission in Pippin. You gotta power through. Um, that's how it was originally presented. It's a nice, tight 90-minute romp. It's not a romp. It goes places. But my point is, there's no graceful way to put in a place to put an act break. So don't do it, motherfuckers. A lot of people do it after Morning Glow. Sometimes people do it after On the Right Track. There should not be an act break. Um... But right after this big moment, um, <laughs> you know, the crown doesn't fit. That's the first sign of trouble. And then, you know, he's like, okay, he's g I'm going to redistribute the wealth. Um, I'm going to give the land to the peasants. Uh, oh, but the, now the nobles have no source of income, uh, you know, for the, the taxes. And then it's like, okay, no one has to pay taxes. I'm going to abolish the taxes. Uh, and then, oh, we don't have taxes. We can't have an army. Okay, I'm going to end the army. Everything's going great. And then, oh, the Hun is nearby. He's going to attack. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. We can't attack him. Let's try to let's negotiate a settlement. Let's be uh, peace. And then, um, you know, they the cuts down on luxury and extravagance in the court to save money. Uh, he can't get peace with the Hun. The Hun wants to uh, remove his sexual organs from his anatomy. So he can't declare war. He de declares a limited police action, but he has no army. And so he tries to tax people again, but then the nobles have no land with which uh, the, or to charge rent or whatever to pay the taxes. So he suspends land reform. And then the, like, the, the worker, why should I work when the poor get handouts from the royal treasury? He stops the handouts to the poor. So it just like undoes everything. And it's like, I think when I was younger, this would have made me angry. And maybe it did, or maybe I didn't care. Maybe I was stoned when the last time I watched Pippin. But it, it's just like, it, it's kind of like a... Uh, conservative sentiment here in a way or or just sort of like a let's have a little common sense here <laughs> you want to tax the rich and distribute the wealth you know or he doesn't tax the rich of course he he wants to uh solve poverty and and taxes and an army all at the same time and everything goes to hell and um i mean there's a lot behind this like you could watch this scene without any political ideology and kind of get it and what it made me think of on this listen was um, 
the way that people on the left flank of the Democratic Party, uh, how that that's even been divided into flanks uh, around figures like AOC, Alexandria Ocasio, uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio, fuck, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Um, there's there's a division there where um, people are just like. We fucking give up on her. We don't like her. And then other people are like, no, she's a net positive. They're like, she gave up her principles. And it's also, but it's not just AOC. It's so the people that um, defend Joe Biden or whoever the Democratic person, the, the Democratic president or candidate is at all costs and against all logic. That's not how it's supposed to work, right? <laughs> like we had uh, gains in the workers' movements and things during FDR, not because of FDR, but because of the pressure that we put on FDR. So what you want to do is you want to get an AOC into her seat of power, but then you want to stop worshiping her. Same thing with a Bernie Sanders. You, you, you make Bernie Sanders president, or at least you do in fantasy land, and then once he's in there, you want to talk mad shit to Bernie Sanders and keep pushing because power corrupts. I don't know if you knew that. What does absolute power do? It corrupts absolutely. So this is a really good, you know, this is again, and this is another example of Pippin digging a little deeper than your, your average musical. Uh, and then there's this thing where they bring uh, Charlemagne back to life and it's very funny. And he's like, okay, just don't do it again, son. And that was all nothing. We'll pretend that didn't happen. Um, this thing's on the right track. There's some weird lyrics in there. It's a bit of a speed bump, uh, but you know, it's fun because you got Ben Vereen in there and there's a nice dance for some Fosse moves. But yeah, dry your lips, damp your scalp, weird dude. The book is a lot smarter than the songs. I think that's what's going on here. The songs are not, they're a little incongruous with the book. He tries art briefly and then he tries church. But like, and then this is one of the best lines in the fucking book. Uh, when the church doesn't work out, because uh, he, he tries to do religion. And then he says, the church isn't saving souls. It's investing in real estate. Yes, King. That's a great line. Uh, and then he, though, we get into the whole Catherine sequence, um, which is really, really nice, really beautiful. I'm your average, ordinary kind of woman. We meet Catherine, the ingenue heroine. I guess you wouldn't call her an ingenue. She's a widow. Uh, she's got a small boy. And that small boy has a pet duck, which if you watch the TV version, it looks like a real fucking duck. I think it is. They bring a duck on stage. Um, there's a lot of cuts from this scene, uh, clearly a cut for time, but, um, in the full version, which I, you get the pleasure to see on this YouTube video, uh, albeit in a bad quality bootleg, uh, version, there's all this thing where the, there's this whole thing where the duck gets sick, um, and like Pippin tries to pray for the duck. And then, you know, the duck dies and then he bonds with the kid and tries to get him a sheep. And then there's a real sheep on stage. What the fuck? It's kind of wild for the, the kid playing Theo, the little boy, Catherine's son. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, you have to cast an actual little boy and then a pretty young boy. I mean, he looks like he's no more than seven. And he's got to wait around backstage until 10.30 p.m. He's at the very end. I, w I hope that they let him play with the duck and the sheep while he was backstage, that they had a room where he could hang out with those animals. Um, and anyway, Average Ordinary Kind of Woman is her song uh, that she sings. It's, it's, I think that's another one that's also more fun on a small stage. When I saw it, they threw confetti all over the goddamn place, and then that confetti stayed on stage for the rest of this show. That happens in the big 
on the big stage too, but it's just cooler when it's uh, whatever, small stage. Uh, the sick duck. They pray over the sick duck. Anyway, that's all cut. But um, eventually, whatever. Uh, oh, Extraordinary. Uh, one of the best songs in the show. Underrated. Unsung hero of Pippin. The song Extraordinary. I did it in uh, auditions uh, from time to time. The fact that I'm different is easy to see. So why doesn't anybody know it but me? It's a great line. Great song. And the way that that sits on the music. You only get that when you got one guy doing music and lyrics, even if it's an imperfect lyricist. He matched it to the music, the high note. Why doesn't anybody know it but me? It's higher than that, baby. It's a fucking B flat. I'll tell you that much. So, um, Pippin and Catherine fall in love. The whole sequence where they have sex and he, he fails and they have the two dancers. I don't want to explain it. Just go see it. Uh, if it's in your town or watch the video. You can only do something like that with musical theater or with theater. Let's just, uh, you know, th let's keep theater alive, everybody. I know it doesn't make any money. Can we find a way to make theater some money so that we can have stuff like that? You don't get storytelling like that in any other medium. Um, here's the first part of the show that's truly boring, love song. And I understand what they're trying to do. They're saying... Here's a love song, and it's called Love Song. And they sing in it, we're going to sing a love song. La, 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 la. But it serves no other purpose. It's a dated-sounding 70s song, and we just sit there. And the show has so much energy, and it just it does not need this breather. It feels like too long of a breather. There's another song right after this, uh, I guess I'll Miss the Man, that is cut from the TV version, and it really should be cut from all versions because it's a, it's a downer, and it's not really uh, of a piece with the rest of it. Um, his decision to leave when he sits at the head of the table with Catherine and Theo, I was really disturbed watching this as a teenager when he says, this is not enough. And it may have just been the age that I was at. I think um, growing up as this hopeless romantic with, you know, issues uh, around women that continue into adulthood. But you're starting to, let, let, let me put it this way. Let me just come out and say it. I was a very uh, sexy teenage, <laughs> teenager. And I, I, got a, I got a lot of ladies when I was uh, that age. And I was just starting to know what it felt like to be chafed by... A commitment in a relationship and like watching this happen to Pippin and then Pippin run away was very disturbing and the finale very disturbing very uncomfortable and we have arrived by the way at that finale the final scene oh my god if you don't know what the thrust of the finale of Pippin is this leading player and the players the ensemble these uh People with masks on and funny outfits and carnival. Like the, these people that are saying, magic to do just for you. This musical theater ensemble tries to seduce the leading man into committing suicide. In probably the prettiest song in the show. The think about the sun, Pippin. It's one blaze of glory. You're extraordinary. It's time to go out in a blaze of glory. It's so fucking chilling. I have a chill down my spine talking about it. I had a chill down my spine watching it every time. I mean, it's really original and it's really fucking, it's fucked up. Um, 
And then it just goes on from there. It's like you're in the finale where, and I think on some level, you know, for like watching this, that there's no way they're going to end this by glorifying suicide. Um, and Pippin actually walking into the flame there. Like he's supposed to walk into this fire and <laughs> let burn himself to death. And it's the finale to the musical because it's presentational. It's Brechtian where we all know that we're in the musical. And this is the finale to the musical. Pippin, the hero, kills himself. He can't do it. Catherine and Theo come back on stage. The leading player is furious that he's not going to do it. They say, you have to, you have to get them out of here. They know what, what are they doing here? And he's trying to convince them, like, oh, she has a mole on her face. Are you going to spend the rest of your life with a woman with a mole on her face? And it's kind of a laugh line, but it's also one of those, like, fucking amazing, incredible laugh lines where it's also tragic. And it's also fucking profound. (laughs) Because it's, like, it's, it's calling out, like... You know, the, the the person, the, the one imperfection about the person that you're in love with, because I don't, I don't care who you are, motherfucker. I mean, if you've been married for 70 years, there's that one thing about that person you're married to that you wish wasn't there, <laughs> that mole on her face. And then um, I, I uh, again, I don't want to brag about crying. And I didn't cry watching it today, <laughs> um, but I came so close, <laughs> the closest that I came was when they were saying, and you're going to stay, this kid is going to be so annoying. He's going to be like, oh, give me this, I want that. And just, they're standing there stoically the whole time. And then when they start mocking the kid, when Pippin picks the kid up and holds the kid, ah, oh, man, that got me this time around. Like, that is a really beautiful moment. Stop, this, it's not going to be like Sunday in the Park with George episode. I'm not going to uh, lean into it this time. But if, my God, um, I've been doing some inner child work, everybody. I know what it means to protect a child from uh, from outside forces that want uh, him dead and want you to perform. That's part of my inner child work. <laughs> oh, my God. We haven't even gotten to the best part. So the final lines, this is... And, so they say, all right, fuck you. You're not going to do the finale. Let's see how you do without us. We're leaving. And we're going to take with us all of the colored lights and all the... They rip off all the costumes. So they're all wearing, you know, their undershirts and their slip. And they're, we're good. They, the, the sets go away. So they're just on stage with the fucking ghost light all by themselves. And then he's singing acapella. And then here are the final lines to the, to the fucking... To Pippin in the original form. Um, they're all alone. Everyone's left. It's just him and Catherine and Theo. She says, Pippin, do you feel like you've compromised? He says, like, no. And then she asks him something else. And then she says, well, how do you feel? And he says, trapped, which isn't bad for the end of a musical comedy. And then they go, ta-da, and they take a bow. Fucking great. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about this ending because um, this has been a bone of contention, okay? Um, They changed it in the revivals starting in 1998 and also in the 2013 revival. What they did was they didn't have that dialogue. They had the whole thing with uh, up to that point singing a cappella and then um, Pippin and Catherine like hold hands or kiss or whatever and exit. But then Theo comes back on stage 
starts, you know, looking around the empty stage, starts to sing corner starts to sing corner of the sky a cappella. And then the leading player comes back on and puts a hat on him. And it's like the cycle's repeating, right? Like uh, Pippin's out, but they're going to start this with somebody else. And that's fine. It's okay. It's not nearly as bold as the original ending. Steven Schwartz prefers this ending. He's wrong! He's wrong. Bob Fosse would be rolling over in his grave. It's like, I mean, first of all, so listen, let's talk about, so th th we're, we're talking about 1972. And this ending is about like, the, the fruitless attempts at discovering meaning or achieving glory or changing things or being a hero. And, but mostly, it's like about the existential horror of aging and compromising. And it's, the, the lead character leaves the whole stadium with the colored lights and the glory and he makes, he does it to make this small human connection and to live a normal life in obscurity. This is uncomfortable for, I think, a lot of people, but especially maybe performer types um, or people who believe for whatever reason that they are exceptional because uh, either somebody told them that they were or they cling clung to it as a delusion early on to shut out other things. Um, you know, it's Blaze of Glory, the 27 Club, uh, Achilles, and the fucking Iliad. It's, it's your destiny. I mean, why would anybody go to Hollywood, California, or Manhattan, New York City, unless they thought that they were destined for something? Like, you have to believe in destiny to do these things, which is why performer types, and also, you know, alcoholic types sometimes. Like, they, they, it, there's a grandiose thing that happens. Even when you think that you're shit, you think you're, you're the, the piece of shit that the world revolves around. But... What's even more incredible than pointing that out in this musical is that it doesn't tell you that if you let all of that go, that everything will be perfect. It says that you'll probably feel trapped. But that's, uh, you know, it's good enough. It's not bad for the end of a musical comedy. It's fucking perfect. It's a perfect ending. And there's a bit of a story behind it, folks. There was a, the original, there was a small, variation on this in the original ending when they were doing it in previews she said uh, well how do you feel Pippin and he said trapped but happy which is not bad for the end of a musical comedy so it said but happy after trapped John Rubenstein who played Pippin uh, he says and he loved that by the way he thought that like the audience would like laugh uh, or uh, in a gallows humor kind of way when he said trapped but then when he said but happy then they would be like oh <laughs> he loved that. Um, John, uh, Bob Fosse comes into John Rubenstein's dressing room after a show, and he says, uh, I, you know that uh, when you say, uh, but happy, cut that. Don't say but happy. And John Rubenstein says, are you crazy? That's the best part. And then Fosse says, I'm not going to have the New York critics call me a goddamn sentimentalist. <laughs> and so John Rubenstein argues with him and says, like, no, 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 the audience you know, gets their unsentimental moment when I say trapped, but then we save them and we save Pippin without getting mushy. That's what the show is about. That's where it's leading us. That's a direct quote, by the way. I acted it for you, so it sounded like um, I was... But he actually said that. And then Bob Fosse responded to me like, uh, nah, it's bullshit. <laughs> That's exactly what Fosse said. And he's right. He's right. And Stephen Schwartz, you know, he's... Him and Roger O'Hearson's start pursuing their right to go back into the script and make changes. And one, um, 
And a quote from Schwartz is, taking out but happy was one of the ways Bob took the heart out of the show, which I think became colder as a result. Shut up. Fuck you. I am now on my uncle's side. Stephen Schwartz is an idiot. He doesn't get it. There are a million life-affirming musicals. There are a million feel-good musicals. You can have heart and still say something layered and nuanced and difficult. Colder indeed. Braver! Braver. <laughs> ah, I loved watching Pippin today. I love Pippin. I refuse to see it. If I ever, if Pippin ever comes to my town, Los Angeles, I'm going to make sure it's the original Fosse ending. And I hope that after Steven Schwartz dies, people can fuck him over by going back to the original. <laughs> because it's better. It's the whole point. Side note, when I showed this to my stepson with the truncated ending, I said, like, so what does that mean to you? What did the ending of that mean to you? And he said, um, basically that all the people in your life want you to kill yourself. <laughs> that made me laugh. Anyway, um, that's, yeah. Let's talk about our next show. Let's, let's lighten the mood here a little bit, everybody. I'm going to go use the restroom. I have to hop on a Zoom meeting in 10 minutes, so I'm going to do a little pause in the middle of this. I'm going to do a pause now to use the restroom, and then I'm going to pause after about 10 minutes to do a Zoom meeting. Okay, bye. And we're back. Howdy. Okay, um, a couple things happened there. As I was urinating, I texted the people I'm meeting in the Zoom meeting uh, and telling them I might be late. Uh, that's another example of maximizing time. Texting while peeing, as long as you can aim while your hands are um, occupied elsewhere. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to try to get through as much of Greece as I can before then. I'm not sure I'm going to get very far, but we'll see. So Greece. Greece is the word. It's the word that you heard. It's got groove. It's got meaning. Well, it's got groove. I'm not 100% sure it has meaning, but uh, a lot of fun. So um, let's, what do we have to say about Greece other than, do I want to dive right into the history of how Greece was made? There's not a lot of information. Well, there is. I didn't dig into it, uh, you know, full disclosure, as much as I could have. Um, you know, Didi Khan, who played Frenchie, wrote a whole fucking book about the making of the movie. The stage play is very different from the movie. So it started in Chicago. There's a few different versions here. Can I get focused here? This is so fucking unfocused. Um, at the Kingston Mines nightclub in Chicago, iconic blues club, 1971. That's the first version of Greece. Um, and the thing about Greece is most people have seen the movie. The movie is most people's entry point. The movie is very raunchy. The play before the movie is raunchier, like, and more vulgar and sex sexual. But the first version at that nightclub in Chicago was apparently super fucking dirty. Um, more vulgar, more sexual. Also, apparently way more uh, Chicagoan and more Polish. Some of these names, um... Or it was a Chicago story written by Chicago guys about their Chicago high school. And there were more references to Chicago landmarks. Mary Lou Henner was in it. The lady from uh, Taxi with the uh, hyperthemesia, which is that uh, super memory ability. She was on 60 Minutes talking about that. That's fucking amazing. It's, it's where you uh, remember details about every moment of every day of your life and you can't turn that off. I thought that I had that when I was younger, but then it all fucking faded. And I didn't have it to that extent. Uh, I certainly don't have it now. I keep fucking up the lyrics to things. 
Um, it, it, Greece, uh, when it closed on Broadway in 1980, it was the longest-running show on Broadway. Uh, it got beat by a chorus line in 1983, three years later. And like I said, it opened in 1972 on Broadway, same year as Pippin. Big year, 1972. Choreographed by Patricia Birch, who also did the choreo for the movie. We remember Patricia Birch from the Sondheim days. She did a Little Night Music. She did Pacific Overtures. Um, and I like Patricia Birch. Uh, her choreo, of course, in the movie is very good. And her personality in these interviews and the Sondheim biographies, is you could tell that she was really fun to hang out with, <laughs> talk to. Now, obviously, like I said, the movie is the best iteration of this. The movie's brilliant, and uh, I don't care. If you don't like the movie of Greece, uh, you know, you're probably a fucking killjoy. I mean, there's really, it's really the only entry point. The, the show on stage is kind of wooden. There are a bunch of different songs from the show that are not in the movie because they're not as good. They wrote three new songs for the movie, iconic songs. Those songs are Hopelessly Devoted to You, You're the One That I Want, and uh, that song, uh, Sandy. So yeah, the movie. And there's a whole book about how the movie was made. You know, why even go into it? It was produced by Robert Stigwood and Alan Carr. I started to watch an, a documentary about Alan Carr. And apparently the point of Alan Carr was he was this Hollywood guy that was everybody's buddy. And he threw these big parties in the fucking 70s. And everybody wanted to go to Alan Carr's parties because there was like uh, uh, Valhalla. And then he was destroyed by producing the Oscars and being the worst Oscars. And for some reason, no one liked Alan Carr after that. I didn't get far enough in the documentary to learn exactly what happened, but that's that's apparently the point of Alan Carr. That's the thrust of his life. He ruined his life by doing a bad version of the Oscars. There's a 1994 Broadway revival of Grease um, in the era, uh, early 90s, which I feel is when Broadway sucked. I think that there was bad shit going on on Broadway in the early 90s. Uh, first of all, you got Rosie O'Donnell playing Rizzo. You know, we, we've already got problems with Soccer Channing looking a little too old to play Rizzo in the movie. Rosie O'Donnell, 1994, you know, come on. Megan Mullally's in there playing Marty. Hunter Foster, he's in there playing Roger. But you got Billy Porter playing the Teen Angel. And that's the part that I remember from the soundtrack from listening to the soundtrack. They definitely try to, uh, I don't want to say 90s it up, but the thing that the movie does, uh, giving it a 70s twang, they tried to give it, I guess, a 90s feel. It didn't really work. It sounded like shit. But Billy Porter is a highlight on that. Billy Porter singing Beauty's Full Dropout as a long, multifaceted gospel song is maybe the best part of the soundtrack. And I didn't even know who the fuck Bord Billy Porter was yet back then. But when I started seeing him uh, on my television <laughs> more and more, I was like, oh, yeah, from the Greece thing. So um, here's the thing about Greece. I've been in Greece twice, both times as a teenager myself. The first time was in ninth grade, and this was in the year before I went to the arts high school. So this was at the crumbling LAUSD school in Van Nuys that I now live half a block away from. Um, Oh, you know, I, I won't tell you what it's called. I don't want you fucking people stalking me. And I don't want to, um, you know, libel, slander. Which one is it if it's famous? Who cares? Off the rails. That break really fucking knocked me off the rails. It's nine o'clock. Um, 
I played, so here's what happened. I was cast, I was a ninth grader, new to the school. I was cast as Johnny Casino and the Teen Angel. Double role. Johnny Casino is the guy at the dance that uh, sings Born to Hand Jive. And then, of course, the Teen Angel sings Beauty School Dropout. During the course of the rehearsal process, the gentleman playing Danny Zuko uh, got kicked out. I don't know. I think he got suspended. I don't know. Maybe expelled. Um, there was an incident in rehearsal where all that I... I don't remember what happened exactly, but the director, teacher, was yelling at him, and he threatened the director. He said... Uh, Hey, watch your back on the street. You know what I mean, Mr. Mc... Uh, I won't say his name. Uh, we lost him. That teacher died uh, a few years later. Uh, but anyway, he, he he threatened him, and so he was no longer in the show. And I moved up to the role of Danny Zuko. <sighs> and um, playing Danny Zuko uh, made me... Uh, definitely got to my head. And uh, I started to get too big for my britches. By the time I did the show again, I was at that arts high school and it was the summer before senior year and uh, friends of mine were in this uh, you know, youth theater thing outside of school in the valley and uh, I went and auditioned for it. Uh, by, by this point, I'm 17 years old and my life has changed. Um, I was cast as Kaniki and I was something of a Kaniki in real life at that point. I was this real, very brash, uh, not so nice teenager who like got into a lot of trouble and broke a lot of hearts, you know what I'm saying? I was a lot cuter in those days, I'll tell you that. I think back on some of the things that I didn't said during this period of my life, and I've even talked to some people. Um, I think about a decade ago, I went on an OkCupid date with somebody that I knew from high school, because I happened to see them on OkCupid, and uh, they told me something that I said to them, and uh, I, I could not believe that I said it. I, I probably, without thinking about it, said so many careless things that ruined people's adolescence. I was an asshole. Let's just say that. Let's just say that hurt people hurt people. And uh, I did some hurting. So what does that say about me? I was a little bit hurt. Um, so here I hear my notes while watching Grease the movie. I mean, this is the notes are going to be on the movie. And I will nod to elements of the play as we go through. But uh, it's an incredible movie. Pure, unalloyed fun. But let's get this out of the way first. The movie has crummy values. It's got a ending that is not a good message. This has been talked to death by a lot of people. You know, um, Sandy decides to not be herself anymore, but to be the kind of lady that Danny likes, which is in a leather jacket and pants that look like they've been painted on and uh, fucking weird hair and smoking a lot of cigarettes and saying, tell me about it, stud. Now, here's something I learned today. Um, the intention of that, because that also happens in the play, it's kind of worse in the play, at least in the movie, Danny also tries to be a jock. So it's like he's trying to be the kind of guy she likes and she's trying to be the kind of guy he likes. I mean, a more ideal ending would be, let's just both be ourselves the way that we fell in love on the beach. But it actually ends with her changing and him not changing. But Jim Jacobs, the co-writer of this, his uh, intention was it was meant to be a subversion of common tropes of 1950s cinema. Since the female lead, who in many 1950s films transforms the alpha male into a more sensitive and sympathetic character, is instead drawn into the man's influence and transforms into his wild roguish fantasy. So that makes sense. I, I don't know why you would necessarily want to do that. It's not like, uh, 
I don't know, uh, men are, are suffering the, the uh, having to fit the cookie cutter idea of what a woman wants them to be. I mean, maybe that was a convention in 50s films, fine, but <laughs> doing it the other way around doesn't feel satisfying, really. It feels, uh, anyway, if you kind of let that go and suspend your disbelief and suspend your values and just realize uh, that there is no uh, moral center to this show and that it's really just a party, and you can do that or not do that, you know? If you want to not do that, that's fine. If you want to not watch Beauty and the Beast because uh, you think that it's harmful for your child to see a young woman live in a house with this uh, angry presence that's unpredictable and f frightening and the only way to turn it into a prince is to be very kind to it and dance with it, um, then, you know, you could do that. Or you can just appreciate it at face value. It doesn't matter. Uh, that's what I did <laughs> today. I said, let's not worry about the meaning. It's got groove. It ain't got meaning. It reminded me of, uh, on this watch, uh, the TV show Freaks and Geeks in that way. Where uh, it, I like how it's it's a period, period piece, um, but it's also, it's not the usual story told from that period. It's the, this is the uh, people on the, the margins, the freaks. We're not getting the story of that football guy or the cheerleading squad. It's the pink ladies and the fucking T-Birds and they're, they're, uh, they're outside of society. I don't give a damn about my reputation. It's Freaks and Geeks without the geeks. Um, what's interesting is this movie feels very innocent, but it's filthy. It's super filthy. It's one of two movie musicals, I think, that surpass the original stage version. Um, it's very rare, by the way. Usually the stage version's better, but this one and one other one, the movie's better. You, you want to say it with me? Here we go. One, two, three. Chicago! That's right. The movie of Chicago is better than the stage version. Don't at me on that. I, it's true, and you're wrong if you disagree. I've seen it on Broadway. I've seen the stale fucking Broadway revival of Chicago that everybody was so in love with in the late 90s that needs to close on Broadway because everybody's fucking tired of it. I saw it in uh, 2017 and was bored to tears by it. So, the movie's better. Grease has an inactive plot, but you never feel you never feel unmoored by that. It's not like Cats, and let's not get into that for Christ's sake, but you, you, you feel like you're in good hands. I don't generally like things that um, are just like, eh, it's just fun. We're not really telling a story, we're just having fun. But in this one, you feel like you're being guided in a good way. I trust the filmmakers of Greece to guide me through something, even though there's uh, there's no plot uh, giving me basic plot points, is all that I'm saying. Um, I think the reason that I was so into it, or the reason that it was done also at my high school, is that I don't know if you remember, those of you from the late 90s, it had a bit of a cultural revival. It was re-released in theaters, remastered. They did that a lot in those days. I, I back in those days, these kids don't remember. They did that with all the Star Wars movies. And I tried for the 700th time to enjoy a Star Wars movie when it was re-released in theaters. Found that I never would and still don't. But Grease got re That's more my speed. Seeing Grease on the big screen, baby, that's a good time. I saw it uh, multiple times in the theaters when it was re-released. <clears throat> Um, one of the ways it's different from the stage version is that uh, 70s groove inflection that they add in there 
It also, it feels very LA. I know it's not really supposed to be Los Angeles, but I mean, there are some shots in it that are unmistakably Los Angeles and just the sunny overall feeling of things. It, but it also has this very like Jersey Italian underpinning with the fucking Di Gregorios and the Rizzos and the Zucos. The people with those last names do not live in Los Angeles. I mean, or at least not many of them. There is not a large Italian community in Los Angeles. This is all I'm trying to say. Um, I looked at some of the locations where they shot things. Uh, a lot of, a lot around Silver Lake and a lot in the South Bay. The school stuff was mostly done at Venice High School, Huntington Park High School, and Marshall High School. Marshall High School is where my father went to high school uh, in Silver Lake. And that's where the dance at the gym was, I think. Um... And Venice High School, the bleachers and all that, uh, yeah. The opening scene, of course, is at Leo Carrillo Beach, the most filmed beach in Los Angeles, and my favorite beach, it's in Malibu. We talked about this at some point, didn't we? Oh yeah, uh, Carousel. We have the title song written for the film, not one of the three I mentioned, but yeah, that was also written for the film. And that sets the tone. They do a cartoon opening sequence, uh, Grease is the word, it's a disco song. And it involves, uh, it's written by Barry Gibb, Mr. Disco Man, but it's sung by Frankie Valli, uh, trying to be a disco, old man trying to be a disco man. Uh, I mean, past his prime, certainly, in 1978, Frankie Valli, uh, from the Four Seasons. And you get, the, the, there's, there's a presence of a lot of guys like that in this. I mean, later we're going to get Frankie Avalon, and uh, I forget his real name, but uh, Kuki, who plays Vince Fontaine. Uh, and these are uh, heartthrobs from the 50s in a film set in the 50s, much older than they were when they were heartthrobs in the 50s. That's what I'm trying to say here. 25 years later. Grease is the Word is like a catchy toe-tapping song, but uh, it bothers me in the same way that the ragtime does, where it's like, why, what does Grease have to do with any of the things you're saying? Like, I understand it's like, we take the pressure and we throw away conventionality belongs to yesterday. So I get it. So you're being nonconformist. Okay, but why? What, what does Greece have to do with that? Just like ragtime. Nothing. Everything was ragtime. No, it wasn't. And uh, it reminded me of uh, when Dead Man Walking, the film, was nominated for an Oscar. And it was an Oscar for Best Song. And uh, what's his name? Springsteen wrote the song for Dead Man Walking. And it kind of seemed like he had not seen the film. They just told him, we've got a movie called Dead Man Walking. Will you please write a song for it? And he was like, I'm a dead man walking. I'm a dead man talking. And that was how that went. And I think it seems like maybe they did this for Barry Gibb. Maybe he had never seen the show. And they just said, the movie's called Grease. And then he was like, Grease is the word. It's the word that you heard. It's got groove. It's got meaning. So, uh, yeah. We get, um, let's talk a little bit about the cast here. Uh, we, we have the late Jeff, Jeff Conaway playing Kanicki. Oh, uh, boy. And uh, I will never forgive Dr. Drew Pinsky for what he did to the legacy of Jeff Conaway with that terrible reality show, Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew. That was back in the days before um, Netflix streaming and, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the wild ava wide availability of TiVo where you kind of had to just watch what was on TV. So I was a regular viewer of Celebrity Rehab uh, and reality shows like that. I find it evil now at this point. And it's, it's hard to watch Jeff Conaway on that show. I think he was in a couple seasons of it. Um, 
But it's it's tragic. He was all fucked up. And just the way that he's like, give me my fucking phone and get me the fuck out of here. And it's just like, oh, man. What was the point of that fucking reality show? I think that Dr. Drew Pinsky has blood on his hands. I'll say it. I'm not afraid to slander Dr. Drew Pinsky. And I know that he's, uh, we, I, we have mutual acquaintances. I don't give a fuck. Fuck you, Dr. Drew. I'm officially calling out Dr. Drew Pinsky and challenging him to a debate. Debate me, bro. I'm too fucking scared. Hide behind your millions of dollars in your 75 podcasts. John Travolta has never been better than he is in Greece. He's so fucking good in Greece that, like, on the strength of this performance, I feel, he got to be an A-lister for the next 45 years. And he keeps fucking it up. Like, he keeps trying to fuck it up and ruin it. And I know that the, the famous story is, so he was a big star, and I know he's a Scientologist, whatever. We don't need to talk about that. What, it's, he's probably a bad guy, and he may have done some bad things to his pilots. But uh, John Travolta, so he's so good in this. He's a Zayla's star, and then he his career goes into the toilet because he does Look Who's Talking movies, and those are really bad. And then Quentin Tarantino saves his life by casting him in that. So, uh, Pulp Fiction. And it's like, he, he came back to being an A-lister by reviving the aesthetic from this. Like, he is just the greaser. And of course, uh, Welcome Back, Cotter is the same thing. It's, that's, he is the best embodiment of the greaser aesthetic. And in Greece is just the best version of it. I saw Saturday Night Fever once when I was a little younger. I should watch it again. I like, didn't like his character. I thought, like, I, I, I didn't, uh, couldn't get myself interested in the character. So I uh, couldn't get on board Saturday Night Fever. I should tell you one thing. I had a job for three days cleaning John Travolta's airplane. That's right. It was at Burbank Airport. It was a job cleaning planes in a hangar that had uh, private planes. And one of them was the airplane of John Travolta. And I uh, went for one day and I scrubbed a lot of the bugs off the windshield of that plane. And I vacuumed the carpet inside. And then the second day I showed up with a crippling hangover. And then the third day I no-showed and I got fired. So there you go. Um, I have cleaned John Travolta's airplane. Feel free to uh, touch me. So why do... Hang on. Okay, I'm back. I just did my Zoom meeting. Now I'm all yours, America. Let's finish this episode. Um, the last thing I was saying before I left for that Zoom meeting, which lasted 45 minutes, uh, I was saying, why do... So let me start right there. Why do Kaniki and Danny hang out with those three morons? It's very, uh, they don't have good friend chemistry. Danny and Kanicki seem like very uh, grown up, uh, big men on campus. And Sonny, Duty, and Putsy uh, seem like total uh, weirdo idiots. And he finally says later, you know, much better than hanging around with you dorks. And it's kind of like, uh, yeah, they are dorks. By the way, in the movie, they're called the T-Birds, but in the play, they're called the Burger Palace Boys. Just so you know, the women or the girls are still the pink ladies. Uh, Stockard Channing, like I said before, she looks like the grandma of somebody in high school. She does not look like she's uh, convincing, like a high schooler. She was 34 years old, I should tell you that, in 1978. Keep that in mind. That could play into this. There's a character called Eugene, who's the uh, a caricature of a nerd. The kind of nerd that uh, you might be for Halloween in the, uh, 1993, like a pocket protector kind of ugh, nerd. Um, this actor, Eddie Deason, I, I read some interesting uh, news about him on TMZ. He, uh, so he, because he came into the restaurant I work in and somebody mentioned this, but I also, I found out that he, 
So he wrote a Facebook post about a waitress in a restaurant that he frequents, not my restaurant, a different restaurant. And he was talking about how uh, attractive and charming she is, but he was complaining that she wore fake eyelashes and sometimes looked unkempt. And she was like, what should I do about this? Should I I mention this to her? Then this uh, woman, this waitress, she gets on social media and blasts him, saying, Eddie Deason is a fucking creep. He comes into my work uh, once a week and he asks the other servers for my schedule. And if he comes in and I'm not wearing makeup, he leaves. I cannot believe he fucking posted what an ass creep. And so after she posted that, he accused her of cyberbullying and said that he was afraid for his life. So, uh, LOL. Uh, I, apparently, I'm TMZ because I'm sharing that, uh, that news with you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, it's consequential to anyone's life. But uh, if, you're, if you work in the restaurant industry and Eddie Deason takes a liking to you, uh, make sure you wear makeup, I guess, or else he might uh, uh, smear your name. Anyway, uh, the principal and her little secretary in this are very funny. The funny little comic duo. Eve Arden, of course, plays the principal. There's a lot of side characters in this that are great, played by famous actors of the time. <laughs> Patty Simcox, the cheerleader, is legitimately scary in this. Just a little too intense, frightening. The character of Marty is played by Diana Manoff, who I know from a little-known television show called Empty Nest. Anyone ever watch Empty Nest? Please let me know if you've watched Empty Nest. If this podcast accomplishes nothing else, I need to know that someone else watched this show. I watched the um, TV theme, the opening theme on YouTube today, and it really brought back memories. She, that was a show that was a spinoff of the Golden Girls, from the Golden Girls. And then there was a spinoff from that called Nurses. And all three shows exist in the same fictional town with a lot of the same characters. Um, Very interesting. Maybe it isn't. But the, uns- the unsung hero of this cast is Jamie Donnelly, who played Jan. Really great. Maybe it was just on this watch, but she was my favorite. She was the only one to reprise her stage role in the movie. Really appealing. Real funny. Definitely the most likable of the pink ladies. Frenchie is, you know, come on. It's a little bit, a uh, little much. Uh, but she, the, the brasha, brasha, brasha. And with that line... Um, it says right here, it is a dessert wine. Eh, it made me laugh. I enjoyed her performance. I guess she was in the Rocky Horror Show originally. Not the picture show, but the show. And she currently lives in La Cunada, Flint Ridge, and teaches acting. So good for her. Thank you, Jamie Donnelly, for your service to Greece. And uh, Didi Khan plays the aforementioned Frenchie. And yeah, Greece is a big part of her life. Uh, after Greece, and she was in Greece too. We're not going to address Greece too here today. I know there's a song about bowling, and Michelle Pfeiffer is in it, and a lot of people think it's bad. I, I saw it on TV once, and I didn't really pay attention. The best song in Greece, of course, is "Summer Nights." Uh, real good. It's it's similar to how it is in the show. I think it's definitely the best song in the stage show, and it's the most musical theater of the songs in the show. The movie adds that, like I said, that sort of uh, 70s twang, the beat to it. You guys don't want to hear all the horny details and then the whole thing. Uh, John Travolta, like I said, he's great. The, the whole thing that he does at the end with the stance and the falsetto, it's like you don't really know why you like it so much, but God damn it, you sure do like it. 
I watched him on Inside the Actors Studio back when I thought things like that were worth my time in the in my youth. And he, somebody, one of the kids raised his hand, raised a hand and asked him about acting in musicals. And he had a great answer that I don't have ready to quote. I can only paraphrase it. And I wasn't about, I looked for it. I couldn't find it. And I wasn't about to sit through, you know, scroll through and transcribe it. So it was something along the lines of, um, a lot of people think that when they're acting in a musical, it's like very trivial and like unserious. But the way to do it, even when you're doing a silly thing like Summer Nights in Greece, is to just play it completely straight and completely natural, uh, like it's an actual scene. And I'm not really that that does not sound as brilliant as it sounded when he said it. And I'm not saying he's brilliant. He's an idiot. And he made that weird Scientology movie and he's a bad guy maybe in real life. I don't know. It's not my business. I don't care. He's good in Greece. Uh, but I feel like that's really good advice. Um, it's really good advice. Someone should have given Russell Crowe that advice. Let's not get back into that can of worms. Uh, Les Miserables. So, uh, did she put up a fight? That's uh, a little weird. There's some rapey things in Greece. I think we can agree on that. Olivia Newton-John plays Sandy. Um, she's like gorgeous and perfect in what I know is a male gaze, kind of gorgeous and perfect. I understand, um... But just so it's it's she's so cute and pretty, uh, and then <laughs> it's creepy. I, I creep myself out, guys. But then later, when she dances at the gym, she's got like a swagger when she's dancing, where uh, you know, just, just like it. Uh, we lost her a couple years ago, Olivia Newton-John. God rest her soul. Uh, there's a Greece curse actually, where a lot of people had an untimely deaths in Greece. I imagine we'll bring up at least one or two more. The waitress in the burger place, she died like the year after it came out. That's a shame. But she was old. Um, but what was I was trying to say? Olivia Newton-John, yeah, just uh, super likable. Never really did anything after that that was very likable. I don't care about that. Let's get physical, physical. Uh, you don't need that. And, I, and obviously Xanadu is not very good, um, unless you like it in an ironic way, in which case, you know, why, why do you like things ironically? Knock it off. This is in 2009. We don't do that anymore. Um, <clears throat> one of the songs that is uh, not like a song song in the movie, but they the, 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 a lot of the songs from the show that are not song songs in the movie are shoehorned in at the dance. One of the nicest of those is Those, mag those Magic Changes. It's a pretty song with the C, 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 A. A melody that's never the same. A melody that's going to let my name and beg you, please come back to me. So that's in the song at the dance. Um, and they also have some songs at the dance that are just like regular oldies from actual oldie uh, tradition. Like, tears on my pillow, pain in my heart over you. <laughs> I like that song. Sid Caesar is in here playing the coach, pioneer of live television comedy, your show of shows, etc. And they they really uh, they construct a role for him in this, not in the show, certainly. Um, I got confused. So what is this Thunder Road business? Why does Thunder Road keep coming up? Is it because I tried to look this up and I may show my ignorance here. So I'm just going to riff on this and tell me I'm wrong. I They talk about racing at Thunder Road and then... You know, there's this fucking Springsteen song, Thunder Road, arguably the best Springsteen. Oh, 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 Thunder Road. 
And then he's, I was like, well, is there a real Thunder Road where people raced someplace? Because uh, he's a Jersey Springsteen and this is what's happening. And then there's a, he said he got the idea from a Robert Mitchum movie he never saw, but just the poster movie called Thunder Road. And like, there is a speedway in Vermont where there's racing. I don't understand. Is it maybe just because when you race cars, it sounds like thunder. So everybody has the idea to call it Thunder Road. Um, I apologize if I'm really wrong about that. I don't give two shits for car racing, whether it's on speedways or in the LA River. The scene where he runs into Sandy and they're rocking and rolling and whatnot, um, really great. John Travolta's comic timing really carries this film. Sandy gets mad so fast over so little in that though, right? Because he doesn't he doesn't say anything like super rude. He's just being weird. Like, ah, what's the matter with me, baby? What's the matter with you? <laughs> where's the Where's the Danny Zuko I met at the beach? I don't know, baby. You know, maybe there's two of us. She put on missing persons. Try the yellow pages. I don't know. And she gets so mad. She says, you're a fake and a phony, and I wish I never laid eyes on you. Um, that is an overreaction, uh, if you ask me. I'm not trying to... Uh, I it, it, That was weird, because they talked for like two seconds, and then she got super mad. But also, why does Danny give a shit with these nerds he hangs out with? think about him uh gushing over a girl like what the fuck i don't understand his relationship with sunny and duty and them i can i get like uh, jeff conaway is a cool guy at this point <laughs> so you want to uh, be cool in front of him but you're also the aren't you the leader of the t-birds aren't you the one that they're all excited about like why don't you just fucking date sandy and hang out with your friends and have a good girlfriend's friend balance i don't know uh, probably missing the point because it's the, the time or something. Uh, sh the, the, the sleepover scene is great. It, it seems like, and at the stage of my life I was watching this, there was, it seemed kind of dangerous. It was dangerous, right? These girls are being bad at this sleepover. They've got wine. They've got cigarettes. They cut the song Freddie My Love. It's a speed bump. It doesn't belong in it. Um, but they took a song away from Dinah Manoff, but it's fine. Who cares? Uh, Look at me, I'm Sandra D. is really fun. I want to say a couple things about the references in that. They talk over and over again in the stage production and uh, and in this song. They, they reference Annette. Like, fucking Annette from, I guess, the Mickey Mouse Club. Annette growing breasts at some point was the biggest cultural uh, bombshell to people in the 50s. Like, people could not deal with the fact that uh, this girl has tits uh, out of nowhere because, the, God damn it, it keeps coming up. Um, it starts with an F, right? Her last name. She ended up in those beach blanket comedies. Am I wrong about all of this? I didn't look it up. Sorry. Um, this is interesting. I did not know this. So they changed the last verse in the movie. The original version is about Sal Minio. No, 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 Sal Minio. I will not sloop, stoop down that low. Uh, they changed it because Sal Minio had been stabbed to death a year before they filmed the, uh, the fucking thing. And they're like, let's not reference him because that's weird because he just got stabbed to death. So they changed it to Elvis. The Elvis, Elvis, let me be. Keep that pelvis far from me. The day they filmed it, Elvis Presley died. What the fuck? That's weird, right? That's weird. Very interesting. Um, they retain the Rydell fight song here. It's the opening number for the musical where they sing the Rydell fight song normally with the um, 
And that's where the Freaks and Geeks thing kind of comes across. It's the same way the beginning of the pilot of Freaks and Geeks. It starts with um, like a, a conventional high school story. There's a football player and his girlfriend and she's a cheerleader. And it's, it's just like at the beginning of Greece. They sing the Rydell fight song and there's a cheerleader there and, a, and Eugene is there and the, whatever. And then... Boom, these greasers bust in through lockers or whatever. That's how they did it in ours. I don't know. We, we came in through lockers. And then they sing like a parody version of it that's like kind of crude. Like, uh, the, the, what is it? Something about, uh, and if you got to use the toilet and later on you start to scratch like hell, take off your underwear and boil it. So that, that but it's the, whatever. There's a little version of that. They sing this in the song. And then they tell them to get out of the car because they're like, hey, hit the pavement. Because uh, Rizzo comes to the car, is what I'm saying. It happens there. We get hopelessly devoted to you, is a solo they add for uh, Olivia Newton-John. And it's a very popular song. This is a karaoke staple for me. My, uh, I'll, I'll do this sometimes for at karaoke. And uh, my whole shtick with it is that uh, I like really commit. Like I get up on stage and I take the mic like I'm heartbroken and hopelessly devoted to someone and I try to make myself look really pathetic and then I sing uh, this song with the high lady notes and uh, everyone has a really nice time um, but why why is she putting a sheet of paper in a waiting pool a child's waiting pool also why is there a full waiting pool in the backyard in the middle of the night you gotta empty those things very strange the bad guy in this is a uh, crater face which begs the question, did they add craters to that guy's face? Or did that guy have acne scars and so they said, let's call your character Crater Face? Um, I feel like I knew this at some point and it's, uh, it's kind of self-evident. I think they overdubbed his voice, his speaking voice. Because Crater Face only has a handful of lines, but it does not seem like he is saying them. It seems like somebody else is saying them. The actor who played Crater Face, by the way, we lost him uh, from uh, he, the, the AIDS epidemic. Uh, so um, he's one of the uh, people from, you know, the, a lot of untimely deaths in Greece, unfortunately. Jeff Conaway, certainly. I mean, he was older than... Anyway, um, we get into Grease Lightning, which is a filthy song. I mean, if you just sort of um, danced around to your living room to that song, maybe you were 10 years old. And uh, John Travolta does you the favor of kind of mumbling the lyrics. You may have missed things. Like, um, you know it ain't no shit. We'll be getting lots of tit and Grease Lightning. And over and over again, I mean, they say the chicks will cream for Grease Lightning. And um, you know that I ain't bragging. She's a real pussy wagon. Those are all in the lyrics of Grease Lightning. It does seem like this is a kid's movie, but it's not. That's, those are her heinous lyrics. Um, there is a cleaned up version of this song that you sometimes do if you're in high school. Um, um, you know there ain't no doubt we'll be really making out in Grease Lightning. You are supreme. The chicks will scream for Grease Lightning. And then um, instead of pussy wagon, it's uh, you know that I ain't bragging. She's a real dragon wagon. Dragon wagon. The sequence where Danny tries all the different sports to become a jock. Hilarious. Funnier each time. Comedy is in threes. Uh, I don't know if you guys knew that. <laughs> uh, they, it does a three and each one is funnier. What, what are they? It starts with basketball and he gets all aggressive. And then it does the, the wrestling. 
and he pounds the guy in the stomach and then it's the baseball and the best the the the, the topper is where he pulls the mask off of the catcher and uh, that's fun what's crazy is the way that this coach is really going the extra mile for Danny Zuko He's going to bat for him, he's going the extra mile, and he's going to the mat for him. I'll use all three of those idioms because those are the three sports involved. Um, one cut. well, I missed one. This guy is really uh, 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 doing a slam dunk for him. Sorry. There's, it, there's one coach for every sport at this school, too. I should tell you that. What's going on there? If you're a student at Rydell High and you walk up to the coach and you express an interest in sport, like getting into sports, he will walk you through every single one of them. He'll take you on a tour of the campus and he happens to be in charge of all of them also. There's no um, assistant coaches or staff or specialists of any kind. This is your guy. And Danny Zuko, I mean, presumably he doesn't have like wealthy, uh, influential parents that are making this happen. He's just some dumb greaser that strolled in and asked for some help doing sports. I don't want to linger too much on this point. It's just it's interesting. He's trying to make changes to appeal to her. But they don't hold, of course, like we talked about before. One change in the movie is there's a character, Putsy, uh, and there's no character named Roger. So what happens is in the play, you got um, Kaniki, Sonny, Roger, and Duty. Duty is like the young kid. In this one, you got Kaniki, Sonny, Duty, and Putsy, and Putsy is the young kid. So Duty, Barry Pearl, graduates a little bit. Roger in the show um, is the one that matched up with Jan. It's Putsy in the movies with Jan. And they sing a song called Mooning, where uh, it's about mooning, but it's like a double entendre because he likes to show his ass, I guess. But he's also fat, I think. They make references. He's supposed to be fat. The woman that plays the girl or whoever, the actress that plays Jan in every version of Greece I've ever been involved in has been not like not only not fat, but maybe the least fat. My older sister played it when I did it in ninth grade and she was way thinner than everybody. And then the lady that played it in uh, the, uh, when I was in, uh, uh, before senior year also, like the, the skinniest person in the... It's weird how that happens. I wonder if like directors that are doing youth programs or youth uh, high school theater, like they do that on purpose to not hurt anybody's feelings. The guy playing the teen angel is heartthrob from the 50s, Frankie Avalon. Of course, it is not the 50s anymore. It is 1978. And it begs the question, why would any teenage girl be interested in this? I think the point is that he's uh, supposed to be, oh, so dreamy, but he looks like a dad. Um, my girlfriend uh, joined me on some of the viewing of this. Uh, she had seen it uh, when she was younger. She, I guess, didn't listen to the words of Beauty School Dropout until today and was outraged by it. <laughs> uh, no customer would go to you unless she was a hooker. She was like, that's so fucking rude. Yeah, of course it is. Um, and, if you, uh, and if you go for your diploma, you could join a steno pool. That's the best you can hope for is be a typist. Go back to school to be a typist, lady. He's calling her a piece of shit in the whole song. I guess that's the point. Um, she does not go back to high school in the play. I think she does in the movie, or they reference the fact that she might, or she does, I guess. Um, <laughs> but she rips up the diploma he hands her in that song, and then he does a little reprise, saying, Baby, you blew it. So there you go. The dance at the gym here is looks way more fun than any of the actual 50s dances you see old videos of on the YouTube. Those look very boring. 
This is a lot of fun. This is fucking uh, bacchanalia. It's like the dance at the gym in Westhead story. It's uh, something I want to, I would like to be a part of. Uh, I would like to take some modern dance classes to join these dances at the gym and be 30 years younger. And, uh, a song that they play that's later in the show, but they play the rock and roll party queen. That's a shitty song. Um, <laughs> this is where we meet Chacha de Gregorio. I don't have anything to say about Chacha de Gregorio. It's just, it's, a, it's fun to say that name, Chacha de Gregorio. Another song, It's Raining on Prom Night, is cut. I think a lot of the songs that are cut are just, um, they don't serve the story. I mean, none of them really do, but it's, it's they're, they're just sort of nostalgia. Oh, now we're going to do a pastiche of this kind of song, and that's what, I don't even have my corsage, oh gee. It fell down the sewer with my sister's ID. And they're talking about taffeta. And it's, you're supposed to listen to that and be like, oh, I remember wearing a taffeta dress to prom. They do the hand jive, born to hand jive, baby. It's the early Macarena, where it's a thing everyone can learn to do. And, you know, you can even do it on the sidelines and feel like you're part of the party. <sighs> the funny thing is, so the whole plot device here in the, you know, the dance is, He's dancing with Sandy, and Sandy's really keeping up. Sandy's dancing her ass off, doing a great job. Uh, but then Chacha de Gregorio um, cuts in, and Sandy gets mad and leaves. John Travolta spends about two seconds worried about Sandy, and then he's like, I just got to dance, baby. I just got to keep on moving. The three boys moon the camera with their asses, and then the principal announces that they're sending the pictures of their asses to the FBI that'll be able to identify them. Which makes you wonder if there really is an ass database that the FBI has. I hope not. I mean, I don't care. They can. I got nothing to hide with my ass. I don't care if the FBI is looking at it. There's then a, the, the, the big drive-in scene. Let's talk for a minute about drive-in movies. They suck. Going to a drive-in movie fucking sucks. Maybe it was fun for the community experience back then because it does look like everybody's there and hanging out. You talk to your friends and you go to the bathroom and you go to get some snacks. I mean, the only places they exist now are in weird little outskirts of town. I know there's one maybe in Pomona. I saw Straight Outta Compton in a uh, drive-in movie a few years back when that was in theaters. And when I was a kid, there was one in the valley where we saw <clears throat> Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I hate, I mean, I don't like sitting in a fucking car and I don't understand why you wouldn't want to leave your car and go sit in a movie theater seat. Maybe it's because I'm tall. Also, like making out when you're tall in a car sucks. Like the, you want to, all you want to do is go anywhere but a car when it's time to make out. The song in the show, when Sandy leaves at the drive-in scene is uh, All Alone at the drive-in movie. It's trash. They smartly replaced it with a song that I didn't even know if Sandy would be as good a song if not for John Travolta taking it so seriously, which, like you said, you know, that's what you're supposed to do with the stranded at the drive-in, branded a fool. But the original one is like, I'm all alone at the drive-in movie. It's a feeling that ain't too groovy. That's not very good. And also, uh, let's remember that, you know, Rizzo told Marty that she skipped a period and she might be pregnant. Marty's response to this is, I know how you feel. I caught Vince Fontaine trying to put aspirin in my Coke at the dance. Okay, that's a bombshell. A man that is demonstrably 45 tried to uh, roofie you, uh, your 16-year-old, at the dance. 
different times, I guess. But it's fun. It's a just sort of a ha 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 aside in 1978. Whoo! And then speaking of rapey, we got that rapey scene at the drive-in that happens before Sandy. And what's so funny about that? Um, it's not funny. I mean, it's funny in a dark way. Is he's like when the speaking part, Sandy, my darling, you hurt me real bad. You know it's true. Let's talk about how she hurt him. She, he aggressively like dove on her after like trying to cop a feel, and then she's like, "Oh, God, get off of me!" and leaves. She hurt him real bad. There's a song that is uh, again funny in the same way, funny in a way that is not funny, but uh, it's from the '60s. It's by Richard Berry. I recommend everybody check this song out. Um, it's disturbing. It's it's in the same school as uh, He Hit Me and It Felt Like a Kiss as like the worst aging songs. I'm going gonna, uh, gonna to do the first few bars of this. It's like a blues riff. This is what he says. Da -da 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 -da. I met a little chick da -da 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 -da. at a neighborhood bar. Da -da 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 -da. I took her for a ride da -da 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 -da. in my brand new car. Da -da 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 -da. I said, hey, baby, da -da -da -da. move over to my side. Da -da 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 -da. The chick moved way over to the other side. Uh-oh, you got to walk home, baby. You got to walk home, baby. You got to walk home, baby, because you just can't treat me right. She just can't treat him right. <laughs> it's it's horrific. Like, people listen to that song and we're like, yeah, I've been there. Why do we listen to what anyone has to say that was alive in the 1950s and 60s? They're all more... And don't yeah, give me a moral relativism argument. Don't tell me that it was the times... Our morals are fixed, and we just plunge deeper into them. Chomsky versus Foucault. I think that that was settled in that debate. There are worse things I could do. Some people, there's a lady that sings this at the restaurant. Um, it's not really, you know, and she's, she sounds nice on it. It's just a weird, it's just not a, it's a weird song to hear over dinner. I don't understand why you take cold showers. I know that this is a thing. It's a trope. If you're, you're uh, sexually repressed, you take cold showers. I can't think of anything worse to do when you're sexually repressed. Is it because you're so horny that you're sweating? Never understood. In the movie, they add some sax appeal to this song. There's a saxophone throughout. One thing I never um, under realized is uh, I don't steal and I don't lie, but I can... I, I thought it was saying, but I can feel and I can cry. In fact, I'll bet you never knew that to cry in front of you is... That's the worst thing I can do. It's actually, um, but I can feel and I can cry. A fact I'll bet you never knew. Not in fact. So it's the end of that sentence. And then, but to cry in front of you is the worst thing I could do is a new sentence. There you go. Next scene, we got, oh, 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 Thunder Road, oh, Thunder Road. Uh, quite clearly, the L.A. River, uh, the 6th Street Bridge. We now are, it's, we are certain that we're in Los Angeles. They have a whole race, and it's, you know, it's fine. It's whatever. We got Creator Face. They're racing for pinks. What do you mean? Pinks, you punk. Ownership papers. Okay, he gets hurt, blah, blah, blah. Um, Sandy has Sandra D. Reprise. Look at me, I'm Sandra D. Reprise, but it all happens in her head, which is, that's nice movie musical uh, touch there. It's her inner thoughts. She asked Frankie, uh, Frenchie for a makeover, and I thought Frenchie was bad at makeovers. I thought that we established that. She does kind of make her look like a hooker, so I guess that tracks. The last scene, so the last song 
or the second to last song. Pardon me. This is the one case. I'm going to make a bold claim here. The song in the musical is better than the one that they put in the movie. The one they put in the movie is, You're the one that I want. You are the one I want. Honey. I wanted to change keys in that because I was on no key at all and it was bad. The song in the show is called All Choked Up. I like this song. I got a little fondness for it. Um, uh, well, upon my word, now my brain is reeling and my eye, 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 sight's blurred. That's the best part. I tremble a lot. I'm nervous and I'm hot. Uh-huh. I'm all choked up. Dun, 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 dun. It's fun. That song's fun. They shouldn't have replaced it. But You're the One That I Want is everyone's favorite. Olivia Newton-John looks like shit with her makeover. Um, I don't think she looks good at all. I mean, you know, fuck my beauty standards. But I'm just saying, she looked better before. Uh, is it because I'm a, I, I prefer the Madonna to the whore? Or I think I do. Uh, I'm a typical male. I just think she objectively looks better before that makeover. Do yourself a favor, by the way. Um, during that song, You're the One That I Want, watch the ensemble. <laughs> I never have before because the dancing is so iconic and your eye is obviously drawn to it. When they're on that earthquake thing, um, John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John, watch the dudes to the left of them, the, the, the little choreography they're doing, and how intensely invested they are <laughs> in the couple that's singing. It's just funny. It's, very, it's funny to, to, to watch that. We get into We Go Together. I find this song irritating. Sorry, um, I know America loves that song, and everybody loves to go boogity 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 boogity. Um, it's the Act One finale in the show and the Act Two finale. It feels like a shrug at the end of the movie because it doesn't have the energy of other songs in the movie. They they you know they do. and then the car flies into the sky, and that's weird. This the the oft debated car flying through the air happens. Anyway, what does it all mean? Greece? Mm, probably nothing. The point is, it's a feel-good teen movie that spans generations. It's a movie about the 50s, made in the 70s, uh, people watched it a lot more in the 90s, and that means, folks, we are due for another- wait, no, we're past due. Shit. We should have uh, had another Gre- oh! Grease Live! We did not even talk about Grease Live. I never saw Grease Live. You'll have to pardon me. They did Grease Live in the 2010s. And everybody said it was the best one. 2016, as a matter of fact. It was the best of the Grease Lives. Or the, the Lives, Jesus Christ. You know what I'm talking about? We're on TV, they do a live musical. The only one of those I've ever seen was a terrible one. Um, a Christmas Story, the musical, live. I could not believe how shitty that was. Uh, Matthew Broderick, uh, just, and just a, that's a badly written musical. Uh, but hey, this is about positive energy. Uh, Vanessa Hudgens from is apparently very good as Rizzo in uh, Grease Live. Ten years after she was in High School Musical, still playing a high schooler. That's the tradition. Old ass high schoolers playing Rizzo. Um, I think that maybe Grease is best when you're a preteen. That's with a lot of teenage stuff, like this fucking The Descendants I just watched. Like, all, all, most of the shit on the Disney Channel is about teenagers, but geared at preteens or, like, kids. I think it's fun for kids to watch teenagers. This one's good for preteens, because there's, like, a bit of a danger and a sexuality and a uh, what's going to happen. Like, I had not tried drugs or alcohol yet <laughs> um, in 1999 when I was watching this. Uh, I had my first drink in the year 2000. 
So it was right uh, on the cusp there. Uh, so I was a bit of a Sandra D myself. And so like the, like I said, the, the, the all of the scene, it's like, oh, this is all terribly... Uh. Uh, but it's consistent with films of the era, the 70s, that feel dangerous. One thing I forgot to mention, I know I put it in my notes. Um, you know, uh, my little history when I did this. So in ninth grade, I went to a high school that was not the arts high school yet. I went to the public school. There was a greaser gang of uh, all Latino guys at that school. And to this day, I don't understand why. Was that a thing? Was that a thing? Was that some anomaly at our school? Was it, Or was that such a trend that there were actual... And I mean like a gang. Like these guys were... Maybe they weren't. Maybe I just thought they were because I was such a little Pollyanna. Uh, but, but here's what happened. So in ninth grade, I was getting bullied. Um, and I had never really... That's like the one year of my life I was bullied. It was at a, you know, like I said, a, 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 a fucked up <laughs> public high school. And basically one day in class, long story short, I was talking shit to this little Armenian kid... Uh, that was actually not so little. He was very muscular, uh, but short. But I was talking shit to him. I was being annoying asshole. And then he started threatening me. And then he started, like, threatening me with dudes behind him. Flanking him like a Bob Fosse dance. Like a couple of Armenian friends. Uh, and there was an Armenian uh, versus Latino rivalry at the school that spanned generations. I was hearing about it for years after I left the school. There were, like, race riots between the Armenians and the Latinos. This guy made me do his homework for months. Um, my parents caught wind of it and like said, you have to tell somebody. And I was like, no. And I like cried and cried and cried. Then I told my parents I stopped doing it. And then I kept doing it. I spent an entire weekend writing standards. Like I will not so-and-so for this kid. Because I guess teachers were still making people do that in the 90s. Uh, yeah, I will not be disruptive in class 500 times. I did that for this kid. He made me do it. Um, then one day in PE class during Greece, the greaser gang... <laughs> They were enlisted to do our hair for Greece when we did it in our little play production class. They were our hairstylists. It was kind of a no-brainer because they had greaser hair. And this guy, Mark, who was the head of the greasers, he was like teaching me how to have like greaser swagger once I played, uh, got the part of Danny. And then one day in PE class, this Armenian kid like was punking me and like being shitty to me. And then I looked across the locker room. I saw one of the greasers I'd never spoken to watching this go down. And then later that day, Mark, the head of the greasers, like, took me aside saying, Hey, yo, I hear they're fucking with you. Yo, I got your back. You tell me. You give me names. I'll fuck them up. I got your back. So the greaser gang um, tried to take me under their wing. And I was like, oh, no, yeah, it's fine. I don't want any trouble. And then uh, I don't know what happened after that. I guess I, I switched schools. I went to a safer arts high school and uh, was not bullied anymore. I became the bully, more or less, at that arts high school. Uh, man passes misery to man that deepens like a coastal shelf. Philip Larkin. This concludes our episode about Pippin and Greece. Um, little scattershot. These musicals did not have a lot in common, except that uh, I am very affectionate towards both of them. So there you go. This was your positive energy for the day. It feels like a million years ago that I was talking about Pippin. Uh, this episode is over two hours, so... Um, there you go. For those of you uh, that enjoy long episodes of things, like me, I enjoy a long-form podcast. Uh, because guess what? You're the boss. You're the TV producer of your own uh, podcast space. You're allowed to press pause and then press play again. So there you go. And there were no ads. So it, this was a win. This was a net positive for you. Congratulations.
You were lucky to have heard it. I'm going to quickly look up a closing line. Okay, uh, I feel pretty confident about this one. Uh, it didn't take me that long, but I feel like it's a winner. Uh, here we go. Podcasts belong where they can ramble. I wasted my whole afternoon. I've got to be on a podcast with just me. Gotta find my corner of iTunes. That's pretty good, right? Yankovic level genius in that song parody. Thank you for listening, folks. And until next week, uh, to you from me, Pinky Lee. <laughs>